Section 20 of Villette by Charlotte Bronte. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Leanne Fortune. Section 20. As soon as Georgette was well, Madame sent her away into the country. I was sorry. I loved the child, and her loss made me poorer than before. But I must not complain. I lived in a house full of robust life. I might have had companions, and I chose solitude. Each of the teachers in turn made me overtures of special intimacy. I tried them all. One I found to be an honest woman, but a narrow thinker, a coarse feeler, and an egotist. The second was a Parisian, externally refined, at heart corrupt, without a creed, without a principle, without an affection having penetrated the outward crust of decorum in this character, you found a slough beneath. She had a wonderful passion for presents, and in this point, the third teacher, a person otherwise characterless and insignificant, closely resembled her. This last named had also one other distinctive property, that of avarice. In her reigned the love of money for its own sake. The sight of a piece of gold would bring into her eyes a green glisten, singular to witness. She once, as a mark of high favour, took me upstairs, and opening a secret door, showed me a hoard, a mass of coarse large coin, about fifteen guineas, in five-franc pieces. She loved this hoard as a bird loves its eggs. These were her savings. She would come and talk to me about them with an infatuated and persevering dotage. Strange to behold in a person not yet twenty-five. The Parisienne, on the other hand, was prodigal and profligate. In disposition, that is, as to action, I do not know. That latter quality showed its snakehead to me but once, peeping out very cautiously. A curious kind of reptile it seemed, judging from the glimpse I got. Its novelty whetted my curiosity. If it would have come out boldly, perhaps I might philosophically have stood my ground and coolly surveyed the long thing from forked tongue to scaly tail tip. But it merely rustled in the leaves of a bad novel, and, on encountering a hasty and ill-advised demonstration of wrath, recoiled and vanished, hissing. She hated me from that day. This Parisian was always in debt, her salary being anticipated not only in dress, but in perfumes, cosmetics, confectionery and condiments. What a cold, callous epicure she was in all things. I see her now, thin in face and figure, sallow in complexion, regular in features, with perfect teeth, lips like a thread, a large prominent chin, a well-opened but frozen eye, of light at once craving and ingrate. She mortally hated work and loved what she called pleasure, being an insipid, heartless, brainless dissipation of time. Madame Beck knew this woman's character perfectly well. She once talked to me about her, with an odd mixture of discrimination, indifference, and antipathy. 
I asked why she kept her in the establishment. She answered plainly, because it suited her interest to do so, and pointed out a fact I had already noticed, namely that Mademoiselle de Pierre possessed, in an almost unique degree, the power of keeping order amongst her undisciplined ranks of scholars. A certain petrifying influence accompanied and surrounded her. Without passion, noise or violence, she held them in check, as a breezeless frost air might still a brawling stream. She was of little use as far as communication of knowledge went, but for strict surveillance and maintenance of rules, she was invaluable. Je sais bien qu'elle n'a pas de principes, ni peut être de mots, admitted Madame frankly, but added with philosophy, son maintien en classe est toujours convenable et rempli même d'une certaine dignité, c'est tout que qu'il faut. Ni les olives, ni les perrons ne regardant plus loin, ni par conséquent moi non plus. A strange, frolicsome, noisy little world was the school. Great pains were taken to hide chains with flowers. A subtle essence of Romanism pervaded every arrangement. Large, sensual indulgence, so to speak, was permitted by way of counterpoise to jealous spiritual restraint. Each mind was being reared in slavery, but to prevent reflection from dwelling on this fact, every pretext for physical recreation was seized and made the most of. There, as elsewhere, the church strove to bring up her children robust in body, feeble in soul, fat, ruddy, hale, joyous, ignorant, unthinking, unquestioning. Eat, drink and live, she says. Look after your bodies, leave your souls to me. I hold their cure, guide their course. I guarantee their final fate, a bargain in which every true Catholic deems himself a gainer. Lucifer just offers the same terms. All this power will I give thee, and the glory of it, for that is delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will, I give it. If thou therefore wilt worship me, all shall be thine. About this time, in the ripest glow of summer, Madame Beck's house became as merry a place as a school could well be. All day long, the broad folding doors and the two-leaved casements stood wide open. Settled sunshine seemed naturalized in the atmosphere. Clouds were far off, sailing away beyond sea, resting, no doubt, round islands such as England, that dear land of mists but withdrawn wholly from the drier continent. We lived far more in the garden than under a roof. Classes were held, and meals partaken of, in the Grand Perceau. Moreover, there was a note of holiday preparation, which almost turned freedom into license. The autumnal long vacation was but two months distant. But before that, a great day, an important ceremony, None other than the fate of Madame awaited celebration. The conduct of this fate devolved chiefly on Mademoiselle Saint-Pierre, Madame herself being supposed to stand aloof, disinterestedly unconscious 
of what might be going forward in her honour. Especially, she never knew, never in the least suspected, that a subscription was annually levied on the whole school for the purchase of a handsome present. The polite tact of the reader will please to leave out of the account a brief secret consultation on this point in Madame's own chamber. What will you have this year? was asked by her Parisian lieutenant. Oh, no matter, let it alone. Let the poor children keep their francs. And Madame looked benign and modest. The Saint-Pierre would here protrude her chin. She knew Madame by heart. She always called her heirs of bonté, des Grimans. She never even professed to respect them one instant. Vite, she would say coldly. Name the article. Shall it be jewellery or porcelain? Haberdashery or silver? Eh bien, Dieu, aux trois culaires et autant de fouchettes en argent. And the result was a handsome case containing three hundred francs worth of plate. The programme of the fake day's proceedings comprised presentation of plate, collation in the garden, dramatic performance with pupils and teachers for actors, a dance and supper. Very gorgeous seemed the effect of the whole to me, as I well remember. Zélie, Saint-Pierre, understood these things and managed them ably. The play was the main point, a month's previous drilling being there required. The choice, too, of the actors required knowledge and care. Then came lessons in elocution, in attitude, and then the fatigue of countless rehearsals. For all this, as may well be supposed, Saint-Pierre did not suffice. Other management, other accomplishments than hers, were requisite here. They were supplied in the person of a master, Monsieur Paul Emmanuel, Professor of Literature. It was never my lot to be present at the histrionic lessons of Monsieur Paul, but I often saw him as he crossed the carré, a square hall between the dwelling house and schoolhouse. I heard him too in the warm evenings, lecturing with open doors, and his name, with anecdotes of him, resounded in one's ears from all sides, especially our former acquaintance, Miss Ginevra Fanshawe, who had been selected to take a prominent part in the play, used in bestowing upon me a large portion of her leisure to lard her discourse with frequent allusions to his sayings and doings. She esteemed him hideously plain and used to profess herself frightened almost into hysterics at the sound of his step or voice. A dark little man he certainly was, pungent and austere, even to me, he seemed a harsh apparition, with his close-shorn black head, his broad, sallow brow, his thin cheek, his wide and quivering nostril, his thorough glance and hurried bearing. Irritable he was. One heard that, as he apostrophized with vehemence the awkward squad under his orders. Sometimes he would break out on these raw amateur actresses with a passion of impatience at their falseness of conception, their coldness of emotion, their feebleness of delivery. Ah, he would cry, 
and then his voice rang through the premises like a trumpet. And when, mimicking it, came the small pipe of a Ginevra, a Matilda, or a Blanche, one understood why a hollow groan of scorn or a fierce hiss of rage rewarded the tame echo. Vous not donc qui de poupée, I heard him thunder. Vous n'avez pas de passion, vous autres. Vous ne sentez donc rien, votre chair est de neige, votre sang de glace, moi. Je veux que tout cela s'allume, qu'il ait une vie, une âme. Vain resolve. And when he at last found it was vain, he suddenly broke the whole business down. Hitherto he had been teaching them a grand tragedy. He tore the tragedy in morsels and came next day with a compact little comic trifle. To this they took more kindly. He presently knocked it all into their smooth, round pates. Mademoiselle Saint-Pierre always presided at Monsieur Emmanuel's lessons, and I was told that the polish of her manner, her seeming attention, her tact and grace, impressed that gentleman very favourably. She had indeed the art of pleasing, for a given time, whom she would, but the feeling would not last. In an hour it was dried like dew, vanished like gossamer. The day preceding Madame's fate was as much a holiday as the fate itself. It was devoted to clearing out, cleaning, arranging and decorating the three schoolrooms. All within doors was the gayest bustle, neither upstairs nor down, could a quiet, isolated person find rest for the sole of her foot. Accordingly, for my part, I took refuge in the garden. The whole day did I wander or sit there alone, finding warmth in the sun, shelter among the trees, and a sort of companionship in my own thoughts. I well remember that I exchanged but two sentences that day with any living being. Not that I felt solitary. I was glad to be quiet. For a looker-on, it sufficed to pass through the rooms once or twice, observe what changes were being wrought, how a green room and a dressing room were being contrived, a little stage with scenery erected, how Monsieur Paul Emmanuel, in conjunction with Mademoiselle Saint-Pierre, was directing all, and how an eager band of pupils, amongst them Ginevra Fanshawe, were working gaily, under his control. The great day arrived. The sun rose hot and unclouded, and hot and unclouded it burned on till evening. All the doors and all the windows were set open, which gave a pleasant sense of summer freedom, and freedom the most complete seemed indeed the order of the day. Teachers and pupils descended to breakfast in dressing gowns and curl papers, anticipating avec délice, the toilet of the evening. They seemed to take a pleasure in indulging that forenoon in a luxury of slovenliness, like aldermen fasting in preparation for a feast. About nine o'clock a.m., an important functionary, the coiffure, arrived, sacrilegious to state, 
he fixed his headquarters in the oratory and there in presence of benetier candle and crucifix solemnized the mysteries of his art each girl was summoned in turn to pass through his hands emerging from them with head as smooth as a shell intersected by faultless white lines and wreathed about with grecian plaits that shone as if lacquered i took my turn with the rest and could hardly believe what the glass said when i applied to it for information afterwards the lavished garlandry of woven brown hair amazed me i feared it was not all my own and it required several convincing pulls to give assurance to the contrary i then acknowledged in the coiffure a first-rate artist one who certainly made the most of indifferent materials the oratory closed the dormitory became the scene of ablutions arrayings and bedizenings curiously elaborate to me it was and ever must be an enigma how they contrived to spend so much time in doing so little the operation seemed close intricate prolonged the result simple a clear white muslin dress a blue sash the virgin's colours a pair of white or straw-colour kid gloves such was the gala uniform to the assumption whereof that house full of teachers and pupils devoted three mortal hours but though simple it must be allowed the array was perfect perfect in fashion fit and freshness every head being also dressed with exquisite nicety and a certain compact taste suiting the full firm comeliness of le basicurien contours though too stiff for any more flowing and flexible style of beauty the general effect was on the whole commendable in beholding this diaphanous and snowy mass i well remember feeling myself to be a mere shadowy spot on a field of light the courage was not in me to put on a transparent white dress something thin i must wear the weather and rooms being too hot to give substantial fabric sufferance so i had sought through a dozen shops till i lit upon a crepe-like material of purple grey the colour in short of dun mist lying on a moor in bloom my tellus had kindly made it as well as she could because as she judiciously observed it was si triste si bon voyant care in the fashion was the more imperative it was well she took this view of the matter for i had no flower no jewel to relieve it and what was more i had no natural rose of complexion we become oblivious of these deficiencies in the uniform routine of daily drudgery but they will force upon us their unwelcome blank on those bright occasions when beauty should shine however in the same gown of shadow i felt at home and at ease an advantage i should not have enjoyed in anything more brilliant or striking madame beck too kept me in countenance her dress was almost as quiet as mine except 
that she wore a bracelet and a large brooch bright with gold and fine stones. We chanced to meet on the stairs, and she gave me a nod and smile of approbation. Not that she thought I was looking well, a point unlikely to engage her interest, but she considered me dressed convenablement, décemment, and la convenance et la décence were the two calm deities of Madame's worship. She even paused, laid on my shoulder her gloved hand, holding an embroidered and perfumed handkerchief, and confided to my ear a sarcasm on the other teachers, whom she had just been complimenting to their faces. Nothing so absurd, she said, as for de femme mieux, to dress themselves like girls of fifteen. Coin à la Saint-Pierre, elle allait d'une vieille coquette qui fait l'ingénue. Being dressed at least a couple of hours before anybody else, I felt a pleasure in betaking myself not to the garden, where servants were busy propping up long tables, placing seats and spreading cloths in readiness for the collation, but to the schoolrooms, now empty, quiet, cool and clean, their walls fresh stained, their planked floors fresh scoured and scarce dry, flowers fresh gathered adorning the recesses in pots, and draperies fresh hung beautifying the great windows. Withdrawing to the first class, a smaller and neater room than the others, and taking from the glazed bookcase of which I kept the key, a volume whose title promised some interest, I sat down to read. The glass door of this class, or schoolroom, opened into the large berceau. Acacia boughs caressed its panes as they stretched across to meet a rosebush blooming by the opposite lintel. In this rosebush, bees murmured, busy and happy. I commenced reading. Just as the stilly hum, the embowering shade, the warm, lonely calm of my retreat were beginning to steal meaning from the page. Vision from my eyes and to lure me along the track of reverie down into some deep dell of dreamland. Just then, the sharpest ring of the street doorbell to which that much-tried instrument had ever thrilled snatched me back to consciousness. End of section 20. Recording by Leanne Fortune. Section 21 of Villette by Charlotte Bronte. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Leanne Fortune. Section 21. Now, the bell had been ringing all the morning, as workmen or servants or coiffeurs or tailleurs went and came on their several errands. Moreover, there was good reason to expect it would ring all the afternoon, since about 100 externes were yet to arrive in carriages or fiacres, nor could it be expected to rest during the evening, when parents and friends would gather thronging to the play. Under these circumstances, a ring, even a sharp ring, was a matter of course, yet this particular peal had an accent of its own, which chased my dream and startled my book from my knee. I was stooping to pick up this last, when, firm, 
fast, straight, right on through vestibule, along corridor, across carré, through first division, second division, grand salle, strode a step, quick, regular, intent. The closed door of the first class, my sanctuary, offered no obstacle. It burst open, and a paletot and a bonnet grec filled the void. Also, two eyes first vaguely struck upon, and then hungrily dived into me. C'est là, said a voice. Je la connais. C'est l'anglaise. Tant pis, two anglaise. Eh, pas consequent. To begule, qu'elle soit, elle fera mon affaire. Où je serai, pourquoi? Then, with a certain stern politeness, I suppose he thought I had not caught the drift of his previous uncivil mutterings, and in a jargon the most execrable that ever was heard, Miss, play you must, I am planted there. What can I do for you, Monsieur Paul Emmanuel? I inquired, for Monsieur Paul Emmanuel it was, and in a state of no little excitement. Play you must, I will not have you shrink, or frown, or make the prude. I read your skull that night you came. I see your moyens. Play you can. Play you must. But how, Monsieur Paul, what do you mean? There is no time to be lost, he went on, now speaking in French. And let us thrust to the wall all reluctance, all excuses, all menorderies. You must take a part. In the vaudeville? In the vaudeville, you have said it. I gasped. Horror-struck, what did the little man mean? Listen, he said, the case shall be stated, and you shall then answer me yes or no, and according to your answer shall I ever after estimate you. The scarce suppressed impetus of a most irritable nature glowed in his cheek, fed with sharp shafts his glances, a nature, the injudicious, the mawkish, the hesitating, the sullen, the affected, above all, the unyielding, might quickly render violent and implacable. Silence and attention was the best balm to apply. I listened. The whole matter is going to fail, he began. Louise van der Kelkhoff has fallen ill, at least so her ridiculous mother asserts. For my part, I feel sure she might play if she would. It is only goodwill that lacks. She was charged with the role, as you know or do not know, it is equal. Without that role, the play is stopped. There are now but a few hours in which to learn it. Not a girl in this school would hear reason and accept the task. Forsooth, it is not an interesting, not an amiable part. Their vile, amour propre, that base quality of which women have so much, would revolt from it. English women are either the best or the worst of their sex. Dieu sait que je les déteste comme la peste ordinairement. This between his recreant teeth. I apply to an Englishwoman to rescue me. What is her answer? Yes or no? A thousand objections rushed into my mind. The foreign language, the limited time, 
the public display, inclination recoiled, ability faltered, self-respect, that vile quality, trembled. No, 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 said all these. But looking up at Monsieur Paul, and seeing in his vexed, fiery and searching eye, a sort of appeal behind all its menace, my lips dropped the word, we. For a moment his rigid countenance relaxed, with a quiver of content. Quickly bent up again, however, he went on, Vite à l'ouvrage! Here is the book, here is your roll, read. And I read. He did not commend. At some passages he scowled and stamped. He gave me a lesson. I diligently imitated. It was a disagreeable part, a man's, an empty-headed fop's. One could put into it neither heart nor soul. I hated it. The play, a mere trifle, ran chiefly on the efforts of a brace of rivals to gain the hand of a fair coquette. One lover was called the Ours, a good and gallant but unpolished man, a sort of diamond in the rough. The other was a butterfly, a talker and a traitor, and I was to be the butterfly, talker and traitor. I did my best, which was bad, I know. It provoked Monsieur Paul. He fumed. Putting both hands to the work, I endeavoured to do better than my best. I presume he gave me credit for good intentions. He professed to be partially content. Ka-ira! he cried, and as voices began sounding from the garden and white dresses fluttering among the trees, he added, You must withdraw. You must be alone to learn this. Come with me. Without being allowed time or power to deliberate, I found myself in the same breath, convoyed along as in a species of whirlwind. Upstairs, up two pair of stairs, nay, actually up three, for this fiery little man seemed as by instinct to know his way everywhere. To the solitary and lofty attic was I born, put in and locked in, the key being in the door, and that key he took with him and vanished. The attic was no pleasant place. I believe he did not know how unpleasant it was, or he would never have locked me in with so little ceremony. In this summer weather, it was hot as Africa, as in winter, it was always cold as Greenland. Boxes and lumber filled it, old dresses draped its unstained wall, cobwebs its unswept ceiling. Well was it known to be tenanted by rats, by black beetles, and by cockroaches. Nay, rumour affirmed that the ghostly nun of the garden had once been seen here. A partial darkness obscured one end, across which, as for deeper mystery, an old russet curtain was drawn, by way of screen to a sombre band of winter cloaks, pendant each from its pin, like a malefactor from his gibbet. From amongst these cloaks, and behind that curtain, the nun was said to issue. I did not believe this, nor was I troubled by apprehension thereof, but I saw a very dark and large rat, with a long tail, come gliding out from that squalid alcove, and moreover my eye fell on many a black beetle dotting the floor. These objects discomposed me more, perhaps, 
then it would be wise to say, as also did the dust, lumber, and stifling heat of the place. The last inconvenience would soon have become intolerable, had I not found means to open and prop up the skylight, thus admitting some freshness. Underneath this aperture I pushed a large empty chest, and having mounted upon it a smaller box, and wiped from both the dust, I gathered my dress, my best, the reader must remember, and therefore a legitimate object of care, fastidiously around me, ascended the species of extempore throne, and being seated, commenced the acquisition of my task, while I learned, not forgetting to keep a sharp lookout, on the black beetles and cockroaches, of which more even I believe than of the rats, I sat in mortal dread. My impression at first was that I had undertaken what it really was impossible to perform, and I simply resolved to do my best and be resigned to fail. I soon found, however, that one part in so short a piece was not more than memory could master at a few hours' notice. I learned and learned on, first in a whisper and then aloud. Perfectly secure from human audience, I acted my part before the garret vermin, entering into its emptiness, frivolity and falsehood, with a spirit inspired by scorn and impatience, I took my revenge on this fat by making him as fortuitous as I possibly could. In this exercise the afternoon passed. Day began to glide into evening, and I, who had eaten nothing since breakfast, grew excessively hungry. Now I thought of the collation, which doubtless they were just then devouring in the garden far below. I had seen in the vestibule a basketful of small pâté à la crème, than which nothing in the whole range of cookery seemed to me better. A pâté, or a square of cake, it seemed to me would come very apropos, and as my relish for those dainties increased, it began to appear somewhat hard that I should pass my holiday fasting and in prison. Remote as was the attic from the street door and vestibule, yet the ever-tinkling bell was faintly audible here, and also the ceaseless roll of wheels on the tormented pavement. I knew that the house and garden were thronged, and that all was gay and glad below. Here it began to grow dusk. The beetles were fading from my sight. I trembled lest they should steal on me a march, mount my throne unseen, and unsuspected invade my skirts. Impatient and apprehensive, I recommenced the rehearsal of my part merely to kill time. Just as I was concluding, the long-delayed rattle of the key in the lock came to my ear. No unwelcome sound. Monsieur Paul, I could just see through the dusk that it was Monsieur Paul, for light enough still lingered to show the velvet blackness of his close-shorn head and the sallow ivory of his brow, looked in. Brava! cried he, holding the door open and remaining at the threshold. J'ai tout entendu, c'est assez bien, encore! A moment I hesitated. Encore! said he sternly. Et point de grimace, à bas la timidité. Again I went through the part, but not half so well as I had spoken it alone. Enfin, elle said, said he, 
half dissatisfied, and one cannot be fastidious or exacting under the circumstances. Then he added, You may yet have twenty minutes for preparation. Au revoir! And he was going. Monsieur, I called out, taking courage. Eh bien, qu'est-ce que c'est, mademoiselle? J'ai bien femme. Comment, vous avez femme et la collation? I know nothing about it. I have not seen it, shut up here. Ah, c'est vrai, cried he. In a moment, my throne was abdicated, the attic evacuated, an inverse repetition of the impetus which had brought me up into the attic instantly took me down, 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 to the very kitchen. I thought I should have gone to the cellar. The cook was imperatively ordered to produce food, and I, as imperatively, was commanded to eat. To my great joy, this food was limited to coffee and cake. I had feared wine and sweets, which I did not like. How he guessed that I should like a petit pâté à la crème, I cannot tell, but he went out and procured me one from some quarter. With considerable willingness, I ate and drank, keeping the petit pâté till the last as a bon boucher. Monsieur Paul superintended my repast, and almost forced upon me more than I could swallow. A la bon cœur, he cried, when I signified that I really could take no more, and with uplifted hands implored to be spared the additional roll on which he had just spread butter. You all set me down as the species of tyrant and bluebeard, starving woman in a garret, whereas, after all, I am no such thing. Now, mademoiselle, do you feel courage and strength to appear? I said I thought I did, though in truth I was perfectly confused, and could hardly tell how I felt, but this little man was of the order of beings who must not be opposed, unless you possessed an all-dominant force sufficient to crush him at once. Come then, said he, offering his hand. I gave him mine, and he set off with a rapid walk, which obliged me to run at his side, in order to keep pace. In the carré he stopped a moment. It was lit with large lamps. The wide doors of the classes were open, and so were the equally wide garden doors, orange trees in tubs, and tall flowers in pots, ornamented these portals on each side. Groups of ladies and gentlemen in evening dress stood and walked amongst the flowers. Within, the long vista of the schoolrooms presented a thronging, undulating, murmuring, waving, streaming multitude, all rose and blue and half-translucent white. There were lustres burning overhead. Far off there was a stage, a solemn green curtain, a row of footlights. Ne sais pas que c'est beau? demanded my companion. I should have said it was, but my heart got up into my throat. Monsieur Paul discovered this, and gave me a side skull and a little shake for my pains. I will do my best, but I wish it was over, said I. Then I asked, are we to walk through that crowd? By no means. I manage matters better. We pass through the garden, here. In an instant we were out of doors. The cool, calm night revived me somewhat. It was moonless, 
But the reflex from the many glowing windows lit the court brightly, and even the alleys, dimly. Heaven was cloudless, and grand with the quiver of its living fires. How soft are the nights of the continent! How bland, balmy, safe! No sea fog, no chilling damp. Mistless is noon, and fresh as morning. Having crossed court and garden, we reached the glass door of the first class. It stood open, like all other doors that night. We passed, and then I was ushered into a small cabinet, dividing the first class from the Grand Salé. This cabinet dazzled me. It was so full of light. It deafened me. It was clamorous with voices. It stifled me. It was so hot, choking, thronged. De l'ordre, du silence, cried Monsieur Paul. Is this chaos? he demanded. And there was a hush. With a dozen words and as many gestures, he turned out half the persons present and obliged the remnant to fall into rank. Those left were all in costume. They were the performers, and this was the green room. Monsieur Paul introduced me. All stared, and some tittered. It was a surprise. They had not expected the Englishwoman would play in a vaudeville. Ginevra Fanshawe, beautifully dressed for her part, and looking fascinatingly pretty, turned on me a pair of eyes as round as beads. In the highest spirit, unperturbed by fear or bashfulness, delighted indeed, at the thought of shining off before hundreds, my entrance seemed to transfix her with amazement in the midst of her joy. She would have exclaimed, but Monsieur Paul held her, and all the rest, in check. Having surveyed and criticised the whole troop, he turned to me. You too must be dressed for your part. Dressed, dressed like a man, exclaimed Zélie Saint-Pierre, darting forwards adding with officiousness, I will dress her myself. To be dressed like a man did not please and would not suit me. I had consented to take a man's name and part as to his dress. Halt la no. I would keep my own dress, come what might. Monsieur Paul might storm, might rage. I would keep my own dress. I said so with a voice as resolute in intent as it was low, and perhaps unsteady in utterance. He did not immediately storm or rage, as I fully thought he would. He stood silent, but Zélie again interposed. She will make a capital petit maitre. Here are the garments, all, all complete, somewhat too large, but I will arrange all that. Come, cher ami, belle anglaise and she sneered, for I was not fell. She seized my hand. She was drawing me away. Monsieur Paul stood impassable, neutral. You must not resist, pursued Saint-Pierre, for resist I did. You will spoil all, destroy the mirth of the peace, the enjoyment of the company, sacrifice everything to your amour propre. This would be too bad. Monsieur will never permit this. She sought his eye. I watched, likewise, for a glance. He gave her one, and then he gave me one. Stop, he said slowly, arresting, 
Saint-Pierre, who continued her efforts to drag me after her. Everybody awaited the decision. He was not angry, not irritated. I perceived that, and took heart. You do not like these clothes? he asked, pointing to the masculine vestments. I don't object to some of them, but I won't have them all. How must it be then? How accept a man's part and go on the stage dressed as a woman? This is an amateur affair, it is true. A vaudeville de pensionnat. Certain modifications I might sanction, yet something you must have to announce you as of the nobler sex. And I will, monsieur, but it must be arranged in my own way. Nobody must meddle. The things must not be forced upon me. Just let me dress myself. Monsieur, without another word, took the costume from Saint-Pierre, gave it to me, and permitted me to pass into the dressing-room. Once alone, I grew calm and collectedly went to work. Retaining my woman's garb without the slightest retrenchment, I merely assumed, in addition, a little vest, a collar, and cravat, and a paletot of small dimensions, the whole being the costume of a brother of one of the pupils. Having loosened my hair out of its braids, made up the long back hair close, and brushed the front hair to one side, I took my hat and gloves in my hand, and came out. Monsieur Paul was waiting, and so were the others. He looked at me. That may pass in a pensionnat, he pronounced, then added not unkindly, Courage, mon ami, un peu de sang froid, un peu d'aplomb. Monsieur Lucien, et tout ira bien. Saint-Pierre sneered again in her cold, snaky manner. I was irritable, because excited, and I could not help turning upon her and saying that if she were not a lady and I a gentleman, I should feel disposed to call her out. After the play, after the play, said Monsieur Paul. I will then divide my pair of pistols between you, and we will settle the dispute according to form. It will only be the old quarrel of France and England. But now the moment approached for the performance to commence. Monsieur Paul, setting us before him, arranged us briefly, like a general addressing soldiers about to charge. I don't know what he said, except that he recommended each to penetrate herself with a sense of her personal insignificance. God knows, I thought this advice superfluous for some of us. A bell tinkled. I and two more were ushered on to the stage. The bell tinkled again. I had to speak the very first words. Do not look at the crowd, nor think of it, whispered Monsieur Paul in my ear. Imagine yourself in the garret, acting to the rats. He vanished. The curtain drew up, shriveled to the ceiling. The bright lights, the long room, the gay throng burst upon us. I thought of the black beetles, the old boxes, the worm-eaten bureau. I said my say badly, but I said it. That first speech was the difficulty. It revealed to me this fact, that it was not the crowd I feared so much as my own voice. Foreigners and strangers, the crowd were nothing to me, nor did I think of them. When my tongue once got free, a 
and my voice took its true pitch and found its natural tone, I thought of nothing but the personage I represented, and of Monsieur Paul, who was listening, watching, prompting in the side scenes. By and by, feeling the right power come, the spring demanded gush and rise inwardly, I became sufficiently composed to notice my fellow actors. Some of them played very well, especially Geneva Fanshawe, who had to coquette between two suitors and managed admirably. In fact, she was in her element. I observed that she once or twice threw a certain marked fondness and pointed partiality into her manner towards me, the fop. With such emphasis and animation did she favour me, such glances did she dart out into the listening and applauding crowd, that to me, who knew her, it presently became evident she was acting at someone, and I followed her eye, her smile, her gesture, and ere long discovered that she had at least singled out a handsome and distinguished aim for her shafts full in the path of those arrows, taller than other spectators, and therefore more sure to receive them, stood in attitude quiet but intent, a well-known form, that of Dr. John. The spectacle seemed somehow suggestive. There was language in Dr. John's look, though I cannot tell what he said. It animated me. I drew out of it a history. I put my idea into the part I performed. I threw it into my wooing of Ginevra. In the hours, or sincere lover, I saw Dr. John. Did I pity him, as erst? No, I hardened my heart, rivalled and outrivalled him. I knew myself but a fop, but where he was outcast, I could please. Now I know I acted as if wishful and resolute to win and conquer. Ginevra seconded me. Between us, we half changed the nature of the role, gilding it from top to toe. Between the acts, Monsieur Paul told us he knew not what possessed us, and half expostulated. C'est peut être plus beau que votre modèle, said he. Mais c'est non pas juste. I know not what possessed me either, but somehow my longing was to eclipse the ours, i.e. Dr. John. Ginevra was tender. How could I be otherwise than chivalric? Retaining the letter, I recklessly altered the spirit of the role. Without heart, without interest, I could not play it at all. It must be played. In went the yearned-for seasoning, thus favoured, I played it with relish. End of section 21. Recording by Leanne Fortune. Section 22 of Villette by Charlotte Bronte. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Leanne Fortune. Section 22. What I felt that night and what I did... I no more expected to feel and do than to be lifted in a trance to the seventh heaven. Cold, reluctant, apprehensive, I had accepted a part to please another, 
ere long warming, becoming interested, taking courage, I acted to please myself. Yet the next day, when I thought it over, I quite disapproved of these amateur performances, and though glad that I had obliged Monsieur Paul and tried my own strength for once, I took a firm resolution never to be drawn into a similar affair. A keen relish for dramatic expression had revealed itself as part of my nature. To cherish and exercise this new-found faculty might gift me with a world of delight, but it would not do for a mere looker-on at life. The strength and longing must be put by, and I put them by, and fastened them in with the lock of a resolution which neither time nor temptation has since picked. No sooner was the play over, and well over, than the choleric and arbitrary Monsieur Paul underwent a metamorphosis. His hour of managerial responsibility passed, he at once laid aside his magisterial austerity. In a moment he stood amongst us, vivacious, kind and social, shook hands with us all round, thanked us separately, and announced his determination that each of us should in turn be his partner in the coming ball. On his claiming my promise, I told him I did not dance. For once I must, was the answer, and if I had not slipped aside and kept out of his way, he would have compelled me to this second performance. But I had acted enough for one evening, it was time I retired into myself and my ordinary life. My dun-coloured dress did well enough under a paletot on the stage, but would not suit a waltz or a quadrille. Withdrawing to a quiet nook, whence unobserved I could observe, the ball, its splendours and its pleasures, passed before me as a spectacle. Again Ginevra Fanshawe was the belle, the fairest and the gayest present. She was selected to open the ball. Very lovely she looked, very gracefully she danced, very joyously she smiled. Such scenes were her triumphs. She was the child of pleasure. Work or suffering found her listless and dejected, powerless and repining, but gaiety expanded her butterflies' wings, lit up their gold dust and bright spots, made her flush like a gem and flush like a flower. At all ordinary diet and plain beverage she would pout, but she fed on creams and ices like a hummingbird on honey paste. Sweet wine was her element and sweet cake her daily bread. Ginevra lived her full life in a ballroom. Elsewhere she drooped, dispirited. Think not, reader, that she thus bloomed and sparkled for the mere sake of Monsieur Paul, her partner, or that she lavished her best graces that night for the edification of her companions only, or for that of the parents and grandparents who filled the carré and lined the ballroom. Under circumstances so insipid and limited, with motives so chilly and vapid, Ginevra would scarce have deigned to walk one quadrille, and weariness and fretfulness would have replaced animation and good humour. 
but she knew of eleven in the otherwise heavy festal mass which lighted the hall. She tasted a condiment which gave it zest. She perceived reasons justifying the display of her choicest attractions. In the ballroom, indeed, not a single male spectator was to be seen who was not married and a father, Monsieur Paul accepted. That gentleman, too, being the sole creature of his sex permitted to lead out a pupil to the dance, and this exceptional part was allowed him, partly as a matter of old established custom, for he was a kinsman of Madame Beck's and high in her confidence, partly because he would always have his own way and do as he pleased, and partly because, willful, passionate, partial as he might be, he was the soul of honour and might be trusted with a regiment of the fairest and purest, in perfect security that under his leadership they would come to no harm. Many of the girls, it may be noted in parenthesis, were not pure-minded at all, very much otherwise, but they no more dare betray their natural coarseness in Monsieur Paul's presence than they dare tread purposely on his corns, laugh in his face during a stormy apostrophe, or speak above their breath while some crisis of irritability was covering his human visage with the mask of an intelligent tiger. Monsieur Paul, then, might dance with whom he would, and woe be to the interference which put him out of step. Others there were admitted as spectators with seeming reluctance, through prayers, by influence, under restriction, by special and difficult exercise of Madame Beck's gracious good nature, and whom she, all the evening, with her own personal surveillance, kept far aloof at the remotest, dreariest, coldest, darkest side of the carré, a small forlorn band of jeunes gens, these being all of the best families, grown-up sons of mothers present, and whose sisters were pupils in the school. That whole evening was Madame on duty beside these jeunes gens, attentive to them as a mother, but strict with them as a dragon. There was a sort of cordon stretched before them, which they wearied her with prayers to be permitted to pass, and just to revive themselves by one dance with that belle blonde, or that jolie brune, or cette jeune fille magnifique aux cheveux noirs comme le jet. Taisez-vous, madame would reply, heroically and inexorably. Vous ne passerez pas à moins que ce ne soit sur mon cadavre. Et vous ne danserez qu'avec la nonnette du jardin, alluding to the legend. And she majestically walked to and fro along their disconsolate and impatient line, like a little Bonaparte in a mouse-coloured silk gown. Madame knew something of the world. Madame knew much of human nature. I don't think that another directress in Villette would have dared to admit a Jean Homme within her walls, but Madame knew that by granting such admission, on an occasion like the present, a bold stroke might be struck, and a great point gained. In the first place, the parents were made accomplices to the deed, for it was only through their mediation it was brought about. 
secondly the admission of these rattlesnakes so fascinating and so dangerous served to draw out madame precisely in her strongest character that of a first-rate servalant thirdly their presence furnished a most piquant ingredient to the entertainment the pupils knew it and saw it and the view of such golden apples shining afar off animated them with a spirit no other circumstance could have kindled the children's pleasure spread to the parents life and mirth circulated quickly round the ballroom the jeunes gens themselves though restrained were amused for madame never permitted them to feel dull and thus madame beck's fate annually ensured a success unknown to the fate of any other directress in the land i observed that dr john was at first permitted to walk at large through the classes there was about him a manly responsible look that redeemed his youth and half expiated his beauty but as soon as the ball began madame ran up to him come wolf come said she laughing you wear sheep's clothing but you must quit the fold notwithstanding come i have a fine menagerie of twenty here in the carré let me place you amongst my collection but first suffer me to have one dance with one pupil of my choice have you the face to ask such a thing it is madness it is impiety saute saute or plus vite she drove him before her and soon had him enclosed within the cordon ginevra being i suppose tired with dancing sought me out in my retreat she threw herself on the bench beside me and a demonstration i could very well have dispensed with cast her arms round my neck lucy snow lucy snow she cried in a somewhat sobbing voice half hysterical what in the world is the matter i dryly said how do i look how do i look to-night she demanded as usual said i preposterously vain caustic creature you never have a kind word for me but in spite of you and all other envious detractors i know i am beautiful i feel it i see it for there is a great looking-glass in the dressing-room where i can view my shape from head to foot will you go with me now and let us two stand before it i will miss fanshawe you shall be humoured even to the top of your bent the dressing-room was very near and we stepped in putting her arm through mine she drew me to the mirror without resistance remonstrance or remark i stood and let her self-love have its feast and triumph curious to see how much it could swallow whether it was possible it could feed to satiety whether any whisper of consideration for others could penetrate her heart and moderate its vainglorious exultation not at all she turned me and herself round she viewed us both on all sides she smiled she waved her curls she retouched her sash she spread her dress and finally letting go my arm and curtsying with mock respect she said i would not be you for a kingdom the remark was too naive to rouse anger i merely said very good and what would you give to be me 
she inquired. Not a bad sixpence, strange as it may sound, I replied. You are but a poor creature. You don't think so in your heart. No, for in my heart you have not the outline of a place. I only occasionally turn you over in my brain. Well, but, said she, in an expostulatory tone, just listen to the difference of our positions, and then see how happy am I, and how miserable are you. Go on, I listen. In the first place, I am the daughter of a gentleman of family, and though my father is not rich, I have expectations from an uncle. Then, I am just eighteen, the finest age possible. I have had a continental education, and though I can't spell, I have abundant accomplishments. I am pretty. You can't deny that. I may have as many admirers as I choose. This very night I have been breaking the hearts of two gentlemen, and it is the dying look I had from one of them just now which puts me in such spirits. I do so like to watch them turn red and pale, and scowl, and dart fiery glances at each other, and languishing ones at me. There is me, happy me, now for you. Poor soul, I suppose you are nobody's daughter, since you took care of little children when you first came to Villette. You have no relations. You can't call yourself young at twenty-three. You have no attractive accomplishments, no beauty. As to admirers, you hardly know what they are. You can't even talk on the subject. You sit dumb when the other teachers quote their conquests. I believe you never were in love, and never will be, you don't know the feeling, and so much the better, for though you might have your own heart broken, no living heart will you ever break. Isn't it all true? A good deal of it is true as gospel, and shrewd besides. There must be good in you, Ginevra, to speak so honestly. That snake, Zeely St. Pierre, could not utter what you have uttered. Still, Miss Fanshawe, hapless as I am, according to your showing, Sixpence I would not give to purchase you, body and soul. Just because I am not clever, and that is all you think of, nobody in the world but you cares for cleverness. On the contrary, I consider you are clever, in your way, very smart indeed. But you were talking of breaking hearts, that edifying amusement into the merits of which I don't quite enter. Pray, on whom does your vanity lead you to think you have done execution to-night? She approached her lips to my ear. Isidore and Alfred de Hamel are both here, she whispered. Oh, they are. I should like to see them. There's a dear creature. Your curiosity is roused at last. Follow me. I will point them out. She proudly led the way. But you cannot see them well from the classes said she, turning. Madame keeps them too far off. Let us cross the garden, enter by the corridor, and get close to them behind. We shall be scolded if we are seen, but never mind. For once I did not mind. Through the garden we went, penetrated into the corridor by a quiet private entrance, and approaching the carré, yet keeping in the corridor shade, commanded a near view of the band of Jeune Jean, I believe I could have picked out the conquering de Hamel even undirected. 
He was a straight-nosed, very correct-featured little dandy. I say little dandy, though he was not beneath the middle standard in stature. But his lineaments were small, and so were his hands and feet, and he was pretty and smooth, and as trim as a doll, so nicely dressed, so nicely curled, so booted and gloved and cravatted. He was charming indeed. I said so. What a dear personage, cried I, and commended Ginevra's taste warmly, and asked her what she thought de Hamel might have done with the precious fragments of that heart she had broken, whether he kept them in a scent vial and conserved them in otter of roses. I observed, too, with deep rapture of approbation, that the colonel's hands were scarce larger than Miss Fanshawe's own, and suggested that this circumstance might be convenient, as he could wear her gloves at a pinch. On his dear curls, I told her I doted, and as to his low Grecian brow and exquisite classic headpiece, I confessed I had no language to do such perfections justice. And if he were your lover, suggested the cruelly exultant Ginevra, Oh, heavens, what bliss, said I, but do not be inhuman, Miss Fanshawe. To put such thoughts into my head is like showing poor outcast Cain a far glimpse of paradise. You like him, then, as I like sweets and jams and comforts and conservatory flowers. Ginevra admired my taste, for all these things were her adoration. She could then readily credit that they were mine, too. Now for Isidore, I went on. I own I felt still more curious to see him than his rival, but Ginevra was absorbed in the latter. Alfred was admitted here tonight, said she, through the influence of his aunt, Madame la Baronne de Dorledo, and now, having seen him, can you not understand why I have been in such spirits all the evening and acted so well? and danced with such life, and why I am now happy as a queen. Dieu, Dieu! It was such good fun to glance first at him, and then at the other, and madden them both. But that other, where is he? Show me, Isidore. I don't like. Why not? I am ashamed of him. For what reason? Because, because, in a whisper, he has such such whiskers, orange, red, there now. The murder is out, I subjoined. Never mind, show him all the same. I engage not to faint. She looked round. Just then an English voice spoke behind her and me. You are both standing in a draught. You must leave this corridor. There is no draught, Dr. John, said I, turning. She takes cold. So easily, he pursued, looking at Ginevra with extreme kindness. She is delicate. She must be cared for. Fetch her shawl. Permit me to judge for myself, said Miss Fanshawe with hauteur. I want no shawl. Your dress is thin. You have been dancing. You are heated. Always preaching, retorted she. Always coddling and admonishing. The answer Dr. John would have given did not come. 
that his heart was hurt became evident in his eye, darkened and saddened and pained. He turned a little aside, but was patient. I knew where there were plenty of shawls near at hand. I ran and fetched one. She shall wear this if I have strength to make her, said I, folding it well round her muslin dress, covering carefully her neck and her arms. Is that Isidore? I asked in a somewhat fierce whisper. She pushed up her lip, smiled and nodded. Is that Isidore? I repeated, giving her a shake. I could have given her a dozen. Selwy mem, said she. How coarse he is, compared with the Colonel Count. And then, oh, ciel, the whiskers. Dr. John now passed on. The Colonel Count, I echoed. The doll, the puppet, the mannequin, the poor inferior creature. A mere lackey for Dr. John, his valet, his footboy. Is it possible that fine, generous gentleman, handsome as a vision, offers you his honourable hand and gallant heart, and promises to protect your flimsy person and feckless mind through the storms and struggles of life, and you hang back? You scorn? You sting? You torture him? Have you power to do this? Who gave you that power? Where is it? Does it lie all in your beauty? your pink and white complexion, and your yellow hair? Does this bind his soul at your feet, and bend his neck under your yoke? Does this purchase for you his affection, his tenderness, his thoughts, his hopes, his interest, his noble, cordial love, and will you not have it? Do you scorn it? You are only dissembling. You are not in earnest. You love him. You long for him but you trifle with his heart to make him more surely yours? Bah! How you run on! I don't understand half you have said. End of section 22 Recording by Leanne Fortune Section 23 of Villette by Charlotte Bronte this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Leanne Fortune, section 23. I had got her out into the garden ere this. I now set her down on a seat, and told her she should not stir till she had avowed which she meant in the end to accept, the man or the monkey. Him you call the man, said she, is bourgeois. Sandy head and answers to the name of John. Cela suffit. Je n'en veux pas. Colonel de Hamal is a gentleman of excellent connections, perfect manners, sweet appearance, with pale, interesting face, and hair and eyes like an Italian. Then, too, he is the most delightful company possible, a man quite in my way, not sensible and serious like the other but one with whom I can talk on equal terms, who does not plague and bore and harass me with depths and heights and passions and talents for which I have no taste. There now, don't hold me so fast. I slackened my grasp and she darted off. I did not care to pursue her. Somehow, 
I could not avoid returning once more in the direction of the corridor to get another glimpse of Dr. John, but I met him on the garden steps, standing where the light from a window fell broad. His well-proportioned figure was not to be mistaken, for I doubt whether there was another in that assemblage his equal. He carried his hat in his hand, his uncovered head, his face and fine brow were most handsome and manly. His features were not delicate, not slight like those of a woman, nor were they cold, frivolous and feeble. Though well cut, they were not so chiselled, so frittered away as to lose in expression or significance what they gained in unmeaning symmetry. Much feeling spoke in them at times, and more sat silent in his eye. Such at least were my thoughts of him. To me he seemed all this. An inexpressible sense of wonder occupied me as I looked at this man and reflected that he could not be slighted. It was not my intention to approach or address him in the garden, our terms of acquaintance not warranting such a step. I had only meant to view him in the crowd, myself unseen. Coming upon him thus alone, I withdrew, but he was looking out for me, or rather for her who had been with me. Therefore, he descended the steps and followed me down the alley. You know Miss Fanshawe? I have often wished to ask whether you knew her, said he. Yes, I know her. Intimately? Quite as intimately as I wish. What have you done with her now? Am I her keeper? I felt inclined to ask. But I simply answered, I have shaken her well, and would have shaken her better, but she escaped out of my hands and ran away. Would you favour me, he asked, by watching over her this one evening, and observing that she does nothing imprudent, does not, for instance, run out into the night air immediately after dancing? I may, perhaps, look after her a little, since you wish it, but she likes her own way too well to submit readily to control. She's so young, so thoroughly artless, said he. To me she is an enigma, I responded. Is she? he asked, much interested. How? It would be difficult to say how, difficult at least to tell you how. And why me? I wonder she is not better pleased that you are so much her friend. But she has not the slightest idea how much I am her friend. That is precisely the point I cannot teach her. May I inquire, did she ever speak of me to you? Under the name of Isidore, she has talked about you often. But I must add that it is only within the last ten minutes I have discovered that you and Isidore are identical. It is only, Dr. John, within that brief space of time, I have learned that Ginevra Fanshawe is the person, under this roof, in whom you have long been interested, that she is the magnet which attracts you to the Rue Fossette, that for her sake you venture into this garden and seek out caskets dropped by rivals. You know all? I know so much. For more than a year I have been accustomed to meet her in society. Mrs. Charles Mondelet, her friend, 
is an acquaintance of mine. Thus I see her every Sunday. But you observed that under the name of Isidore, she often spoke of me. May I, without inviting you to a breach of confidence, inquire what was the tone, what the feeling of her remarks? I feel somewhat anxious to know, being a little tormented with uncertainty as to how I stand with her. Oh, she varies. She shifts and changes like the wind. Still, you can gather some general idea? I can, thought I. But it would not do to communicate that general idea to you. Besides, if I said she did not love you, I know you would not believe me. You are silent, he pursued. I suppose you have no good news to impart. No matter. If she feels for me positive coldness and aversion, it is a sign I do not deserve her. Do you doubt yourself? Do you consider yourself the inferior of Colonel de Hommel? I love Miss Fanshawe far more than de Hommel loves any human being and would care for and guard her better than he. Respecting de Hommel, I fear she is under an illusion. The man's character is known to me, all his antecedents all his scrapes. He is not worthy of your beautiful young friend. My beautiful young friend ought to know that, and to know or feel who is worthy of her, said I. If her beauty or her brains will not serve her so far, she merits the sharp lesson of experience. Are you not a little severe? I am excessively severe, more severe than I choose to show you. You should hear the strictures with which I favour my beautiful young friend, only that you would be unutterably shocked at my want of tender considerateness for her delicate nature. She is so lovely one cannot but be loving towards her. You, every woman older than herself, must feel for such a simple, innocent, girlish fairy a sort of motherly or elder sisterly fondness. Graceful angel, does not your heart yearn towards her when she pours into your ear her pure childlike confidences? How you are privileged, and he sighed. I cut short these confidences somewhat abruptly now and then, said I. But excuse me, Dr. John, may I change the theme for one instant? What a godlike person is that to Hummel? What a nose on his face. Perfect. Model one in putty or clay. You could not make a better or straighter or neater. And then, such classic lips and chin, and his bearing, sublime. De Hummel is an unutterable puppy, besides being a very white-livered hero. You, Dr. John, and every man of a less refined mould than he, must feel for him a sort of admiring affection such as Mars, and the coarser deities may be supposed to have borne the young, graceful Apollo. An unprincipled, gambling little jackanapes, said Dr. John curtly, whom, with one hand, I could lift up by the waistband any day, and lay low in the kennel if I liked. The sweet seraph, said I, what a cruel idea. Are you not a little severe, Dr. John? And now I paused. 
For the second time that night, I was going beyond myself, venturing out of what I looked on as my natural habits, speaking in an unpremeditated, impulsive strain, which startled me strangely when I halted to reflect. On rising that morning, had I anticipated that before night, I should have acted the part of a gay lover in a vaudeville, and an hour after, frankly discussed with Dr. John the question of his hapless suit, and rallied him on his illusions, I had no more presaged such feats than I had looked forward to an ascent in a balloon, or a voyage to Cape Horn. The doctor and I, having paced down the walk, were now returning. The reflex from the window again lit his face. He smiled, but his eye was melancholy. How I wished that he could feel heart's ease. How I grieved that he brooded over pain, and pain from such a cause. He with his great advantages. He to love in vain. I did not then know that the pensiveness of reverse is the best phase for some minds. Nor did I reflect that some herbs, though scentless when entire, yield fragrance when they are bruised. Do not be sorrowful, do not grieve, I broke out. If there is in Ginevra one spark of worthiness of your affection, she will, she must, feel devotion in return. Be cheerful, be hopeful, Dr. John. Who should hope, if not you? In return for the speech I got what, it must be supposed, I deserved a look of surprise. I thought also of some disapprobation. We parted, and I went into the house very chill. The clock struck, and the bells tolled midnight. People were leaving fast, the fate was over, the lamps were fading. In another hour, all the dwelling house and all the pensionat were dark and hushed. I too was in bed, but not asleep. To me it was not easy to sleep after a day of such excitement. End of section 23. Recording by Leanne Fortune. Section 24 of Villette by Charlotte Bronte. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Leanne Fortune. Section 24. Following Madame Beck's fate, with its three preceding weeks of relaxation, its brief twelve hours' burst of hilarity and dissipation, and its one subsequent day of utter languor, came a period of reaction, two months of real application of close, hard study. These two months, being the last of the Anne scolaire, were indeed the only genuine working months in the year. To them was procrastinated, into them concentrated, alike by professors, mistresses, and pupils. The main burden of preparation for the examinations preceding the distribution of prizes, candidates for awards, had then to work in good earnest. Masters and teachers had to set their shoulders to the wheel, to urge on the backward and diligently aid and train the more promising. A showy demonstration, a telling exhibition, 
must be got up for public view, and all means were fair to this end. I scarcely noted how the other teachers went to work. I had my own business to mind, and my task was not the least onerous, being to imbue some ninety sets of brains with a due tincture of what they considered a most complicated and difficult science, that of the English language, and to drill ninety tongues in what for them was an almost impossible pronunciation, the lisping and hissing dentals of the isles. The examination day arrived. Awful day, prepared for with anxious care, dressed for with silent dispatch, nothing vaporous or fluttering now, no white gauze or azure streamers. The grave close compact was the order of the toilette. It seemed to me that I was this day especially doomed, the main burden and trial falling on me alone of all the female teachers. The others were not expected to examine in the studies they taught. The professor of literature, Monsieur Paul, taking upon himself this duty, he, the school autocrat, gathered all and sundry reins into the hollow of his one hand. He eyefully rejected any colleague he would not have helped. Madame herself, who evidently rather wished to undertake the examination in geography, her favourite study, which she taught well, was forced to succumb and be subordinate to her despotic kinsman's direction. The whole staff of instructors, male and female, he set aside, and stood on the examiner's estrade alone. It irked him that he was forced to make one exception to this rule. He could not manage English. He was obliged to leave that branch of education in the English teacher's hands, which he did, not without a flash of naive jealousy. A constant crusade against the amour propre of every human being but himself was the crochet of this able but fiery and grasping little man. He had a strong relish for public representation in his own person, but an extreme abhorrence of the like display in any other. He quelled, he kept down when he could, and when he could not, he fumed like a bottled storm. On the evening preceding the examination day, I was walking in the garden, as were the other teachers, and all the boarders. Monsieur Emmanuel joined me in the Allée d'Enfondu. His cigar was at his lips, his paletot, a most characteristic garment of no particular shape, hung dark and menacing, the tassel of his bonnet grec sternly shadowed, his left temple, his black whiskers curled like those of a wrathful cat, his blue eye had a cloud in its glitter. And see, he began, abruptly fronting and arresting me. Vous allez trôner comme une reine, demain trôner à mes côtes, sans doute vous sèvrerez devant les délices de l'autorité, je crois voir, et je ne sais quoi, de rionante, petit ambitieux. Now, the fact was, he happened to be entirely mistaken. I did not, could not, estimate the admiration or the good opinion of tomorrow's audience at the same rate he did. 
Had that audience numbered as many personal friends and acquaintance for me as for him, I know not how it might have been. I speak of the case as it stood. On me, school triumphs shed but a cold luster. I had wondered, and I wondered now, how it was that for him they seemed to shine as with hearth warmth and hearth glow. He cared for them perhaps too much. I, probably, too little. However, I had my own fancies as well as he. I liked, for instance, to see Monsieur Emmanuel jealous. It lit up his nature and woke his spirit. It threw all sorts of queer lights and shadows over his dun face and into his violet azure eyes. He used to say that his black hair and blue eyes were une de ses beautés. There was a relish in his anger. It was artless, earnest, quite unreasonable, but never hypocritical. I uttered no disclaimer then of the complacency he attributed to me. I merely asked where the English examination came in, whether at the commencement or close of the day. I hesitate, said he, whether at the very beginning, before many persons are come, and when your aspiring nature will not be gratified by a large audience, or quite at the close, when everybody is tired and only a jaded and worn-out attention will be at your service. Que vous deux, monsieur? I said, affecting dejection. One ought to be deux with you. You are one of those beings who must be kept down. I know you, I know you. Other people in this house see you pass and think that a colourless shadow has gone by. As for me, I scrutinised your face once, and it sufficed. You are satisfied that you understand me? Without answering directly, he went on, Were you not gratified when you succeeded in that vaudeville? I watched you and saw a passionate ardour for triumph in your physiognomy. What fire shot into the glance? Not mere light, but flame. Je me tiens pour averti. What feeling I had on that occasion, monsieur, and pardon me if I say, you immensely exaggerate both its quality and quantity, was quite abstract. I did not care for the vaudeville. I hated the part you assigned me. I had not the slightest sympathy with the audience below the stage. They are good people, doubtless, but do I know them? Are they anything to me? Can I care for being brought before their view again tomorrow? Will the examination be anything but a task to me? A task I wish well over? Shall I take it out of your hands? With all my heart, if you do not fear failure, but I should fail. I only know three phrases of English and a few words. Par exemple, de son, de mon, de stair. Et c'est bien dit? My opinion is that it would be better to give up the thing altogether, to have no English examination, eh? If Madame consents, I consent. Heartily? Very heartily. He smoked his cigar in silence. He turned suddenly. Donnez-moi la main, said he, and the spite and jealousy melted out of his face, and a generous kindliness shone there instead. 
Come, we will not be rivals. We will be friends, he pursued. The examination shall take place, and I will choose a good moment. And instead of vexing and hindering, as I felt half inclined ten minutes ago, for I have my malevolent moods, I always had from childhood, I will aid you sincerely. After all, you are solitary and a stranger, and have your way to make and your bread to earn. It may be well that you should become known. We will be friends. Do you agree? Out of my heart, monsieur, I am glad of a friend. I like that better than a triumph. Pauvrette, said he, and turned away and left the alley. The examination passed over well. Monsieur Paul was as good as his word, and did his best to make my part easy. The next day came the distribution of prizes. That also passed. The school broke up, the pupils went home, and now began the long vacation. That vacation! Shall I ever forget it? I think not. Madame Beck went, the first day of the holidays, to join her children at the seaside. All the three teachers had parents or friends with whom they took refuge. Every professor quitted the city. Some went to Paris, some to Beaumarine. Monsieur Paul set forth on a pilgrimage to Rome. The house was left quite empty, but for me, a servant, and a poor deformed and imbecile pupil, a sort of cretin, whom her stepmother in a distant province would not allow to return home. My heart almost died within me. Miserable longings strained its cords. How long were the September days? How silent, how lifeless, how vast and void seemed the desolate premises. How gloomy the forsaken garden, grey now with the dust of a town summer departed. Looking forward at the commencement of those eight weeks, I hardly knew how I was to live to the end. My spirits had long been gradually sinking. Now that the prop of employment was withdrawn, they went down fast. Even to look forward was not to hope. The dumb future spoke no comfort offered no promise, gave no inducement to bear present evil in reliance on future good. A sorrowful indifference to existence often pressed on me, a despairing resignation to reach betimes the end of all things earthly. Alas, when I had full leisure to look on life, as life must be looked on by such as me, I found it but a hopeless desert, tawny sands with no green fields, no palm tree, no well in view. The hopes which are dear to youth, which bear it up and lead it on, I knew not, and dared not know, if they knocked at my heart sometimes, an inhospitable bar to admission must be inwardly drawn. When they turned away thus rejected, tears sad enough sometimes flowed, but it could not be helped. I dared not give such guests lodging. So mortally did I fear the sin and weakness of presumption. Religious reader, you will preach to me a long sermon about what I have just written. And so will you, moralist, and you, stern sage, you, stoic, will frown, you, cynic, sneer, you, epicure, laugh. 
Well, each and all, take it your own way. I accept the sermon, frown, sneer and laugh. Perhaps you are all right, and perhaps, circumstanced like me, you would have been, like me, wrong. The first month was, indeed, a long, black, heavy month to me. The Cretan did not seem unhappy. I did my best to feed her well and keep her warm, and she only asked food and sunshine, or when that lacked, fire. Her weak faculties approved of inertion. Her brain, her eyes, her ears, her heart slept content. They could not wake to work, so lethargy was their paradise. Three weeks of that vacation were hot, fair and dry, but the fourth and fifth were tempestuous and wet. I do not know why that change in the atmosphere made a cruel impression on me. Why the raging storm and beating rain crushed me with a deadlier paralysis than I had experienced while the air had remained serene. But so it was, and my nervous system could hardly support what it had for many days and nights to undergo in that huge empty house. How I used to pray to heaven for consolation and support, with what dread force the conviction would grasp me that fate was my permanent foe, never to be conciliated. I did not, in my heart, arraign the mercy or justice of God for this. I concluded it to be a part of his great plan that some must deeply suffer while they live, and I thrilled in the certainty that of this number I was one. It was some relief when an aunt of the Cretan, a kind old woman, came one day and took away my strange, deformed companion. The hapless creature had been at times a heavy charge. I could not take her out beyond the garden, and I could not leave her a minute alone, for her poor mind, like her body, was warped. Its propensity was to evil, a vague bent to mischief, an aimless malevolence, made constant vigilance indispensable. As she very rarely spoke, and would sit for hours together moping and mowing, and distorting her features with indescribable grimaces, it was more like being prisoned with some strange tameless animal than associating with a human being. Then there were personal attentions to be rendered which required the nerve of a hospital nurse. My resolution was so tried, it sometimes fell dead sick. These duties should not have fallen on me. A servant, now absent, had rendered them hitherto, and in the hurry of holiday departure, no substitute to fill this office had been provided. This tax and trial were by no means the least I have known in life. Still, menial and distasteful as they were, my mental pain was far more wasting and wearing. Attendance on the Cretan deprived me often of the power and inclination to swallow a meal, and sent me faint to the fresh air and the well or fountain in the court. But this duty never wrung my heart, or brimmed my eyes, or scalded my cheek with tears, hot as molten metal. The Cretan being gone, I was free to walk out. At first, I lacked courage 
to venture very far from the roof was set, but by degrees I sought the city gates, and passed them, and then went wandering away, far along, chaussee, through fields, beyond cemeteries, Catholic and Protestant, beyond farmsteads, to lanes and little woods, and I know not where. A goad thrust me on, a fever forbade me to rest. A want of companionship maintained in my soul the cravings of a most deadly famine. I often walked all day, through the burning noon and the arid afternoon and the dusk evening, and came back with moonrise. While wandering in solitude, I would sometimes picture the present probable position of others, my acquaintance. There was Madame Beck at a cheerful watering place with her children, her mother, and a whole troop of friends who had sought the same scene of relaxation. Zélie Saint-Pierre was at Paris with her relatives. The other teachers were at their homes. There was Ginevra Fanshawe, whom certain of her connections had carried on a pleasant tour southward. Ginevra seemed to me the happiest. She was on the route of beautiful scenery. These September suns shone for her on fertile plains, where harvest and vintage matured under their mellow beam. These golden crystal moons rose on her vision over blue horizons waved in mounted limes. But all this was nothing. I too felt those autumn suns and saw those harvest moons, and I almost wished to be covered in with earth and turf, deep out of their influence, for I could not live in their light, nor make them comrades, nor yield them affection. But Ginevra had a kind of spirit with her, empowered to give constant strength and comfort, to gladden daylight and embalm darkness, the best of the good genii that God humanity curtained her with his wings and canopied her head with his bending form. By true love was Ginevra followed. Never could she be alone. Was she insensible to this presence? It seemed to me impossible. I could not realize such deadness. I imagined her grateful in secret, loving now with reserve, but purposing one day to show how much she loved. I pictured her faithful hero half-conscious of her coy fondness, and comforted by that consciousness, I conceived an electric cord of sympathy between them, a fine chain of mutual understanding, sustaining union through a separation of a hundred leagues, carrying across mountain hollow communication by prayer and wish. Ginevra gradually became with me a sort of heroine, one day, perceiving this growing illusion, I said, I really believe my nerves are getting overstretched. My mind has suffered somewhat too much. A malady is growing upon it. What shall I do? How shall I keep well? End of section 24. Recording by Leanne Fortune. Section 25 of Villette by Charlotte Bronte. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Leanne Fortune. Section 25. Indeed, there was no way to keep well under the circumstances. 
At last, a day and night of peculiarly agonizing depression were succeeded by physical illness. I took perforce to my bed. About this time, the Indian summer closed and the equinoctial storms began, and for nine dark and wet days, of which the hours rushed on all turbulent, deaf, dishevelled, bewildered with sounding hurricane, I lay in a strange fever of the nerves and blood. Sleep went quite away. I used to rise in the night, look round for her, beseech her earnestly to return. A rattle of the window, a cry of the blast, only replied, Sleep never came. I err. She came once, but in anger. Impatient of my importunity, she brought with her an avenging dream. By the clock of Saint Jean Baptiste, that dream remained scarce fifteen minutes, a brief space, but sufficing to wring my whole frame with unknown anguish, to confer a nameless experience that had the hue, the mien, the terror, the very tone of a visitation from eternity. Between twelve and one that night, a cup was forced to my lips, black, strong, strange, drawn from no well, but filled up, seething from a bottomless and boundless sea. Suffering, brewed in temporal or calculable measure, and mixed for mortal lips, tastes not as this suffering tasted. Having drank and woke, I thought all was over, the end come and passed by. Trembling fearfully, as consciousness returned, ready to cry out on some fellow-creature to help me, only that I knew no fellow-creature was near enough to catch the wild summons. Goton in her far-distant attic could not hear. I rose on my knees in bed. Some fearful hours went over me. Indescribably was I torn, racked, and oppressed in mind. Amidst the horrors of that dream, I think the worst lay here. Methought the well-loved dead, who had loved me well in life, met me elsewhere, alienated. Galled was my inmost spirit with an unutterable sense of despair about the future. Motive there was none why I should try to recover or wish to live, and yet quite unendurable was the pitiless and haughty voice in which death challenged me to engage his unknown terrors. When I tried to pray, I could only utter these words, From my youth up, thy terrors have I suffered with a troubled mind. Most true was it. On bringing me my tea next morning, Goton urged me to call in a doctor. I would not. I thought no doctor could cure me. One evening, and I was not delirious, I was in my sane mind, I got up, I dressed myself, weak and shaking. The solitude and the stillness of the long dormitory could not be borne any longer. The ghastly white beds were turning into spectres. The coronal of each became a death's head. 
huge and sun-bleached. Dead dreams of an elder world and mightier race lay frozen in their wide gaping eye-holes. That evening, more firmly than ever, fastened into my soul the conviction that fate was of stone and hope a false idol, blind, bloodless, and of granite core. I felt, too, that the trial God had appointed me was gaining its climax, and must now be turned by my own hands, hot, feeble, trembling as they were. It rained still, and blew, but with more clemency, I thought, than it had poured and raged all day. Twilight was falling, and I deemed its influence pitiful. From the lattice I saw coming night clouds, trailing low like banners drooping. It seemed to me that at this hour there was affection and sorrow in heaven above, for all pain suffered on earth beneath. The weight of my dreadful dream became alleviated. That insufferable thought of being no more loved, no more owned, half yielded to hope of the contrary. I was sure this hope would shine clearer if I got out from under this house roof, which was crushing as the slab of a tomb, and went outside the city to a certain quiet hill, a long way distant in the fields. Covered with a cloak, I could not be delirious, for I had sense and recollection to put on warm clothing. Forth I set. The bells of a church arrested me in passing. They seemed to call me in to the salute, and I went in. Any solemn rite, any spectacle of sincere worship, any opening for appeal to God, was as welcome to me then as bread to one in extremity of want. I knelt down with others on the stone pavement. It was an old solemn church, its pervading gloom not gilded, but purpled by light shed through stained glass. Few worshippers were assembled, and the salute over, half of them departed. I discovered soon that those left remained to confess I did not stir. Carefully, every door of the church was shut, a holy quiet sank upon, and a solemn shade gathered about us. After a space, breathless and spent in prayer, a penitent approached the confessional. I watched. She whispered her vow. Her shrift was whispered back. She returned, consoled. Another went, and another. A pale lady, kneeling near me, said in a low, kind voice, Go you now, I am not quite prepared. Mechanically obedient, I rose and went. I knew what I was about. My mind had run over the intent with lightning speed. To take this step could not make me more wretched than I was. It might soothe me. The priest within the confessional never turned his eyes to regard me. He only quietly inclined his ear to my lips. He might be a good man, 
that this duty had become to him a sort of form. He went through it with the phlegm of custom. I hesitated. Of the formula of confession I was ignorant. Instead of commencing then with the prelude usual, I said, Mon Pierre, je suis protestant. He directly turned. He was not a native priest. Of that class, the cost of physiognomy is almost invariably grovelling. I saw by his profile and brow he was a Frenchman. Though grey and advanced in years, he did not, I think, lack feeling or intelligence. He inquired, not unkindly, why, being a Protestant, I came to him. I said I was perishing for a word of advice or an accent of comfort. I had been living for some weeks quite alone. I had been ill. I had a pressure of affliction on my mind, of which it would hardly any longer endure the weight. Was it a sin, a crime? He inquired, somewhat startled. I reassured him on this point, and, as well as I could, I showed him the mere outline of my experience. He looked thoughtful, surprised, puzzled. You take me unawares, said he. I have not had such a case as yours before. Ordinarily, we know our routine and are prepared, but this makes a great break in the common course of confession. I am hardly furnished with counsel, fitting the circumstances. Of course, I had not expected he would be, but the mere relief of communication in an ear which was human and sentient, yet consecrated, the mere pouring out of some portion of long-accumulating, long-pent-up pain into a vessel whence it could not be again diffused had done me good. I was already solaced. Must I go, father? I asked of him as he sat silent. My daughter, he said kindly, and I am sure he was a kind man. He had a compassionate eye. For the present, you had better go, but I assure you, your words have struck me. Confession, like other things, is apt to become formal and trivial with habit. You have come and poured your heart out, a thing seldom done. I would fain think your case over and take it with me to my oratory. Were you of our faith, I should know what to say. A mind so tossed can find repose, but in the bosom of retreat and the punctual practice of piety. The world, it is well known, has no satisfaction for that class of natures. Holy men have bidden penitents like you to hasten their path upward by penance, self-denial and difficult good works. Tears are given them here for meat and drink, bread of affliction and waters of affliction, their recompense comes hereafter. It is my own conviction that these impressions under which you are smarting are messengers from God to bring you back to the true church. You were made for our faith. Depend upon it, our faith alone could heal and help you. Protestantism is altogether too dry 
cold, prosaic for you. The further I look into this matter, the more plainly I see it is entirely out of the common order of things. On no account would I lose sight of you. Go, my daughter, for the present, but return to me again. I rose and thanked him. I was withdrawing when he assigned me to return. You must not come to this church, said he. I see you are ill, and this church is too cold. You must come to my house. I live... And he gave me his address. Be there tomorrow morning at ten. In reply to this appointment, I only bowed, and pulling down my veil, and gathering round me my cloak, I glided away. Did I, do you suppose, reader, contemplate venturing again within that worthy priest's reach? As soon should I have thought of walking into a Babylonish furnace. That priest had arms which could influence me. He was naturally kind, with a sentimental French kindness, to whose softness I knew myself not wholly impervious. Without respecting some sorts of affection, there was hardly any sort having a fibre of root in reality, which I could rely on my force wholly to withstand. Had I gone to him, he would have shown me all that was tender and comforting and gentle in the honest popish superstition. Then he would have tried to kindle, blow and stir up in me the zeal of good works. I know not how it would all have ended. We all think ourselves strong in some points. We all know ourselves weak in many. The probabilities are, had I visited numero ten, rue de Mange, the probabilities are, that had I visited numero ten, rue de Mange, at the hour and day appointed, I might just now, instead of writing this heretic narrative, be counting my beads in the cell of a certain Carmelite convent on the boulevard of Crecy in Villette. There was something of Fenelon about that benign old priest, and whatever most of his brethren may be, and whatever I may think of his church and creed, and I like neither, of himself I must ever retain a grateful recollection. He was kind when I needed kindness. He did me good. May heaven bless him. Twilight had passed into night, and the lamps were lit in the streets, ere I issued from that sombre church. To turn back was now become possible to me. The wild longing to breathe this October wind on the little hill, far without the city walls, had ceased to be an imperative impulse, and was softened into a wish with which reason could cope. She put it down, and I turned, as I thought, to the Rue Fossette. But I had become involved in a part of the city with which I was not familiar. It was the old part, and full of narrow streets of picturesque, ancient, and mouldering houses. I was much too weak to be very collected, and I was still too careless of my own welfare and safety to be cautious. I grew embarrassed. 
I got enmeshed in a network of turns unknown. I was lost and had no resolution to ask guidance of any passenger. If the storm had lulled a little at sunset, it made up now for lost time. Strong and horizontal thundered the current of the wind from northwest to southeast. It brought rain like spray, and sometimes a sharp hail like shot. It was cold and pierced me to the vitals. I bent my head to meet it, but it beat me back. My heart did not fail at all in this conflict. I only wished that I had wings and could ascend the gale, spread and repose my pinions on its strength, career in its course, sweep where it swept. While wishing this, I suddenly felt colder where before I was cold and more powerless where before I was weak. I tried to reach the porch of a great building near but the mass of frontage and the giant spire turned black and vanished from my eyes. Instead of sinking on the steps as I intended, I seemed to pitch headlong down an abyss. I remember no more. End of section 25. Recording by Leanne Fortune. Section 26 of Villette by Charlotte Bronte. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Leanne Fortune. Section 26. Where my soul went during that swoon, I cannot tell. Whatever she saw, or wherever she travelled in her trance on that strange night, she kept her own secret, never whispering a word to memory and baffling imagination by an indissoluble silence. She may have gone upward and come in sight of her eternal home, hoping for leave to rest now, and deeming that her painful union with matter was at last dissolved. While she so deemed, an angel may have warned her away from heaven's threshold, and, guiding her weeping down, have bound her once more, all shuddering and unwilling, to that poor frame, cold and wasted, of whose companionship she was grown more than weary. I know she re-entered her prison with pain, with reluctance, with a moan and a long shiver. The divorced mates, spirit and substance, were hard to reunite. They greeted each other, not in an embrace, but a racking sort of struggle, the returning sense of sight came upon me, red as if it swam in blood. Suspended hearing rushed back loud, like thunder. Consciousness revived in fear. I sat up, appalled, wondering into what region, amongst what strange beings, I was waking. At first I knew nothing I looked on. A wall was not a wall, a lamp not a lamp. I should have understood what we call a ghost, as well as I did the commonest object, which is another way of intimating that all my eye rested on, struck it as spectral. But the faculties soon settled, each in his place. The life-machine presently resumed its wanted and regular working. Still, 
I knew not where I was. Only in time I saw I had been removed from the spot where I fell. I lay on no portico step. Night and tempest were excluded by walls, windows and ceiling. Into some house I had been carried. But what house? I could only think of the pensionette in the roof of set. Still half dreaming, I tried hard to discover in what room they had put me, whether the great dormitory or one of the little dormitories. I was puzzled because I could not make the glimpses of furniture I saw accord with my knowledge of any of these apartments. The empty white beds were wanting and the long line of large windows. Surely, thought I, it is not to Madame Beck's own chamber they have carried me? And here my eye fell on an easy chair, covered with blue damask. Other seats, cushioned to match, dawned on me by degrees. And at last I took in the complete fact of a pleasant parlour, with a wood fire on a clear shining hearth, a carpet where arabesques of bright blue relieved a ground of shaded fawn. Pale walls over which a slight but endless garland of azure forget-me-nots ran mazed and bewildered amongst myriad gold leaves and tendrils. A gilded mirror filled up the space between two windows, curtained amply with blue damask. In this mirror I saw myself laid, not in bed, but on a sofa. I looked spectral, my eyes larger and more hollow, my hair darker than was natural, by contrast with my thin and ashen face. It was obvious, not only from the furniture, but from the position of windows, doors and fireplace, that this was an unknown room in an unknown house. Hardly less plain was it that my brain was not yet settled, for as I gazed at the blue armchair, it appeared to grow familiar. So did a certain scroll couch, and not less so the round centre table, with a blue covering, bordered with autumn-tinted foliage, and above all, two little footstools with worked covers, and a small ebony-framed chair, of which the seat and back were also worked with groups of brilliant flowers on a dark ground. Struck with these things, I explored further. Strange to say, old acquaintance were all about me, and old Lang Syne smiled out of every nook. There were two oval miniatures over the mantelpiece, of which I knew by heart the pearls about the high and powdered heads, the velvet circling the white throats, the swell of the full muslin kerchiefs, the pattern of the lace-leave ruffles. Upon the mantel shelf there were two china vases, some relics of a diminutive tea service, as smooth as enamel and as thin as eggshell, and a white centre ornament, a classic group in alabaster, preserved under glass. Of all these things, I could have told the peculiarities, numbered the flaws or cracks, like any clairvoyant. Above all, there was a pair of hand screens, with elaborate pencil drawings, finished like line engravings. These, my very eyes ached at beholding again, recalling hours when they had followed, 
stroke by stroke and touch by touch, a tedious, feeble, finical schoolgirl pencil held in these fingers, now so skeleton-like. Where was I? Not only in what spot of the world, but in what year of our Lord, for all these objects were of past days and of a distant country. Ten years ago I bade them goodbye, since my fourteenth year they and I had never met. I gasped audibly, Where am I? A shape hitherto unnoticed stood, rose, came forward, a shape inharmonious with the environment, serving only to complicate the riddle further. This was no more than a sort of native bon, in a commonplace bon's cap and print dress. She spoke neither French nor English, and I could get no intelligence from her, not understanding her phrases of dialect. But she bathed my temples and forehead with some cool and perfumed water, and then she heightened the cushion on which I reclined, made signs that I was not to speak, and resumed her post at the foot of the sofa. She was busy knitting, her eyes thus drawn from me, I could gaze on her without interruption. I did mightily wonder how she came there, or what she could have to do among the scenes, or with the days of my girlhood. Still more, I marvelled what those scenes and days could now have to do with me. Too weak to scrutinise thoroughly the mystery, I tried to settle it by saying it was a mistake, a dream, a fever fit, and yet I knew there could be no mistake, and that I was not sleeping, and I believed I was sane. I wished the room had not been so well lighted that I might not so clearly have seen the little pictures, the ornaments, the screens, the work chair. All these objects, as well as the blue damask furniture, were, in fact, precisely the same in every minutest detail, with those I so well remembered, and with which I had been so thoroughly intimate, in the drawing-room of my godmother's house at Brayton. Methought the apartment only was changed, being of different proportions and dimensions. I thought of bedridden Hassan, transported in his sleep from Cairo to the gates of Damascus. Had a genius stooped his dark wing down the storm to whose stress I had succumbed, and gathering me from the church steps, and rising high into the air, as the eastern tale said, had he borne me over land and ocean, and laid me quietly down beside a hearth of old England. But no, I knew the fire of that hearth burned before its lairs no more. It went out long ago and the household gods had been carried elsewhere. The bond turned again to survey me, and, seeing my eyes wide open, and I suppose, deeming their expression perturbed and excited, she put down her knitting. I saw her busied for a moment at a little stand. She poured out water, and measured drops from a phial. Glass in hand, she approached me, dark-tinged draught might she now be offering? What genii elixir 
or magi distillation, it was too late to inquire. I had swallowed it passively and at once. A tide of quiet thought now came gently caressing my brain. Softer and softer rose the flow, with tepid undulations smoother than balm. The pain of weakness left my limbs, my muscles slept. I lost power to move, but, losing at the same time wish, it was no privation. That kind bond placed a screen between me and the lamp. I saw her rise to do this, but do not remember seeing her resume her place. In the interval between the two acts, I fell on sleep. At waking, lo, all was again changed. The light of high days surrounded me, not indeed a warm summer light, but the leaden gloom of raw and blustering autumn. I felt sure now that I was in the pensionate, sure by the beating rain on the casement, sure by the wather of wind amongst trees, denoting a garden outside, sure by the chill, the whiteness, the solitude amidst which I lay. I say whiteness, for the dimity curtains drooped before a French bed bounded my view. I lifted them, I looked out. My eye, prepared to take in the range of a long, large and whitewashed chamber, blinked baffled on encountering the limited area of a small cabinet, a cabinet with sea-green walls. Also, instead of five wide and naked windows, there was one high lattice, shaded with muslin festoons, instead of two dozen little stands of painted wood, each holding a basin and an ewer. There was a toilet table dressed, like a lady for a ball, in a white robe over a pink skirt, a polished and large glass crowned, and a pretty pincushion filled with lace adorned it. This toilet, together with a small, low, green and white chintz armchair, a washstand topped with a marble slab and supplied with utensils of pale greenware, sufficiently furnished the tiny chamber. Reader, I felt alarmed. Why, you will ask, what was there in this simple and somewhat pretty sleeping closet to startle the most timid? Merely this. These articles of furniture could not be real, solid armchairs, looking-glasses, and washstands. They must be the ghosts of such articles, or, if this were denied as too wild an hypothesis, and confounded as I was, I did deny it. There remained but to conclude that I had myself passed into an abnormal state of mind. In short, that I was very ill and delirious, and even then mine was the strangest figment with which delirium had ever harassed a victim. I knew, I was obliged to know, the green chintz of that little chair, the little snug chair itself, the carved shining black foliated frame of that glass, the smooth milky green of the china vessels on the stand, the very stand too, with its top of grey marble, splintered at one corner. All these I was compelled to recognise and to hail, as last night I had, perforce, recognised and hailed the rosewood, 
the drapery, the porcelain of the drawing room. Brayton, Brayton! And ten years ago, Sean reflected in that mirror. And why did Brayton and my fourteenth year haunt me thus? Why, if they came at all, did they not return complete? Why hovered before my distempered vision the mere furniture, while the rooms and the locality were gone? As to that pincushion made of crimson satin, ornamented with gold beads and filled with thread lace, I had the same right to know it as to know the screens. I had made it myself. Rising with a start from the bed, I took the cushion in my hand and examined it. There was the cipher, LLB, formed in gold beds and surrounded with an oval wreath embroidered in white silk. These were the initials of my godmother's name, Lenisa Lucy Breton. Am I in England? Am I at Breton? I muttered, and hastily pulling up the blind with which the lattice was shrouded, I looked out to try and discover where I was. Half prepared to meet the calm, old, handsome buildings and clean grey pavement of St. Anne Street, and to see at the end the towers of the Minster, or, if otherwise, fully expectant of a town view somewhere, a ruin Villette, if not a street, in a pleasant and ancient English city. I looked, on the contrary, through a frame of leafage, clustering round the high lattice, and forth thence to a grassy mead-like level, a lawn terrace with trees rising from the lower ground beyond, high forest trees, such as I had not seen for many a day. They were now groaning under the gale of October, and between their trunks I traced the line of an avenue where yellow leaves lay in heaps and drifts, or were whirled singly before the sweeping west wind. Whatever landscape might lie further must have been flat, and these tall beeches shut it out. The place seemed secluded, and was to me quite strange. I did not know it at all. End of section 26. Recording by Leanne Fortune. Section 27 of Villette by Charlotte Bronte. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Leanne Fortune. Section 27. Once more I lay down. My bed stood in a little alcove. On turning my face to the wall, the room with its bewildering accompaniments became excluded. Excluded? No! For as I arranged my position in this hope, behold, on the green space between the divided and looped-up curtains hung a broad gilded picture frame enclosing a portrait. It was drawn, well drawn, though but a sketch, in watercolours, a head, a boy's head, fresh, lifelike, speaking and animated. It seemed a youth of sixteen, fair-complexioned, with sanguine health in his cheek, hair long, not dark, and with a sunny sheen, penetrating eyes, an arch mouth, and a gay smile. On the whole, 
a most pleasant face to look at, especially for those claiming a right to that youth's affections, parents, for instance, or sisters. Any romantic little schoolgirl might almost have loved it in its frame. Those eyes looked as if, when somewhat older, they would flash a lightning response to love. I cannot tell whether they kept in store the steady beaming shine of faith, for whatever sentiment met him in form too facile, his lips menaced, beautifully but surely, caprice and light esteem. Striving to take each new discovery as quietly as I could, I whispered to myself, Ah, that portrait used to hang in the breakfast room, over the mantelpiece, somewhat too high, as I thought. I well remember how I used to mount a music stool for the purpose of unhooking it, holding it in my hand, and searching into those bonny wells of eyes, whose glance under their hazel lashes seemed like a penciled laugh, and well I liked to note the colouring of the cheek and the expression of the mouth. I hardly believed fancy could improve on the curve of that mouth, or of the chin. Even my ignorance knew that both were beautiful, and pondered perplexed over this doubt. How it was that what charmed me so much could at the same time so keenly pain. Once, by way of test, I took little Missy home, and lifting her in my arms, told her to look at the picture. Do you like it, Polly? I asked. She never answered, but gazed long, and at last a darkness went trembling through her sensitive eye as she said, Put me down. So I put her down, saying to myself, The child feels it too. All these things do I now think over, adding, He had his faults. Yet scarce ever was a finer nature, liberal, suave, impressible. My reflections closed in an audibly pronounced word. Graham! Graham! echoed a sudden voice at the bedside. Do you want Graham? I looked. The plot was but thickening, the wonder but culminating. If it was strange to see that well-remembered pictured form on the wall, still stranger was it to turn and behold the equally well-remembered living form opposite, a woman, a lady, most real and substantial, tall, well-attired, wearing widow's silk, and such a cap as best became her matron and motherly braids of hair. Hers, too, was a good face, too marked, perhaps, now for beauty, but not for sense or character. She was little changed, something sterner, something more robust, but she was my godmother, still the distinct version of Mrs. Breton. I kept quiet, yet internally, I was much agitated, my pulse fluttered, and the blood left my cheek, which turned cold. Madam, where am I? I inquired. In a very safe asylum, well protected for the present. Make your mind quite easy till you get a little better. You look ill this morning. I am so entirely bewildered, 
I do not know whether I can trust my senses at all, or whether they are misleading me in every particular. But you speak English, do you not, madam? I should think you might hear that. It would puzzle me to hold a long discourse in French. You do not come from England? I am lately arrived thence. Have you been long in this country? You seem to know my son. Do I, madam? Perhaps I do. Your son, the picture there? That is his portrait as a youth. While looking at it, you pronounced his name. Graham Breton? She nodded. I speak to Mrs. Breton, formerly of Breton, Shire? Quite right. And you, I am told, are an English teacher in a foreign school here. My son recognized you as such. How was I found, madam? And by whom? My son shall tell you that by and by, said she. But at present you are too confused and weak for conversation. Try to eat some breakfast, and then sleep. Notwithstanding all I had undergone, the bodily fatigue, the perturbation of spirits, the exposure to weather, it seemed that I was better. The fever, the real malady which had oppressed my frame, was abating, for, whereas during the last nine days I had taken no solid food and suffered from continual thirst, this morning, on breakfast being offered, I experienced a craving for nourishment, an inward faintness which caused me eagerly to taste the tea this lady offered, and to eat the morsel of dry toast she allowed in accompaniment. It was only a morsel, but it sufficed, keeping up my strength, till some time two or three hours afterwards, when the bon brought me a little cup of broth and a biscuit. As evening began to darken, and the ceaseless blast still blew wild and cold, and the rain streamed on, deluge-like, I grew weary, very weary of my bed. The room, though pretty, was small. I felt it confining. I longed for a change. The increasing chill and gathering gloom too depressed me. I wanted to see, to feel firelight. Besides, I kept thinking of the sun, of that tall matron. When should I see him? Certainly not till I left my room. At last the bon came to make my bed for the night. She prepared to wrap me in a blanket and placed me in the little chintz chair, but declining these attentions, I proceeded to dress myself. The business was just achieved and I was sitting down to take breath when Mrs. Breton once more appeared. Dressed! she exclaimed, smiling with that smile I so well knew, a pleasant smile, though not soft. You are quite better then, quite strong, eh? She spoke to me so much as of old she used to speak that I almost fancied she was beginning to know me. There was the same sort of patronage in her voice and manner that as a girl I had always experienced from her, a patronage I yielded to, and even liked. It was not founded on conventional grounds of superior wealth or station. In the last particular there had never been any inequality. Her degree was mine. But on natural reasons of physical advantage, it was the shelter the tree gives the herb, 
I put a request without further ceremony. Do let me go downstairs, madam. I am so cold and dull here. I desire nothing better, if you are strong enough to bear the change, was her reply. Come then, here is an arm. And she offered me hers. I took it, and we descended one flight of carpeted steps to a landing, where a tall door, standing open, gave admission into the blue damask room. How pleasant it was in its air of perfect domestic comfort! How warm in its amber lamplight and vermilion fire-flush! To render the picture perfect, tea stood ready on the table, an English tea, whereof the whole shining service glanced at me familiarly from the solid silver urn of antique pattern and the massive pot of the same metal to the thin porcelain cups, dark with purple and gilding. I knew the very seed-cake of peculiar form, baked in a peculiar mould, which always had a place on the tea-table at Breton. Graham liked it, and there it was, as of yore, set before Graham's plate with a silver knife and fork beside it. Graham was then expected to tea. Graham was now, perhaps, in the house. Ere many minutes, I might see him. Sit down, sit down, said my conductress, as my step faltered a little in passing to the hearth. She seated me on the sofa, but I soon passed behind it, saying the fire was too hot. In its shade I found another seat which suited me better. Mrs. Breton was never wont to make a fuss about any person or anything. Without remonstrance she suffered me to have my own way. She made the tea and she took up the newspaper. I liked to watch every action of my godmother. All her movements were so young. She must have been now above fifty, yet... Neither her sinews nor her spirits seemed yet touched by the rust of age. Though portly, she was alert, and though serene, she was at times impetuous. Good health and an excellent temperament kept her green as in her spring. While she read, I perceived she listened, listened for her son. She was not the woman ever to confess herself uneasy, but there was yet no lull in the weather, and if Graham were out in that hoarse wind, roaring still unsatisfied, I well knew his mother's heart would be out with him. Ten minutes behind his time, said she, looking at her watch. Then in another minute, a lifting of her eyes from the page, and a slight inclination of her head towards the door, denoted that she heard some sound. Presently her brow cleared, and then even my ear, less practised, caught the iron clash of a gate swung to. Steps on gravel. Lastly, the doorbell. He was come. His mother filled the teapot from the urn. She drew nearer the hearth, the stuffed and cushioned blue chair, her own chair by right, but I saw there was one who might with impunity usurp it, and when that one came up the stairs, which he soon did, after, I suppose, some such attention to the toilet as the wild and wet night rendered necessary, and strode straight in. Is it you, Graham? said his mother, hiding a glad smile and speaking curtly. Who else should it be, Mamma? demanded the unpunctual, possessing himself irreverently 
of the abdicated throne. Don't you deserve cold tea for being late? I shall not get my desserts for the urn sings cheerily. Wheel yourself to the table, lazy boy. No seat will serve you but mine. If you had one spark of a sense of propriety, you would always leave that chair for the old lady. So I should, only the dear old lady persists in leaving it for me. How is your patient, Mamma? Will she come forward and speak for herself? said Mrs. Breton, turning to my corner, and at this invitation, forward I came. Graham courteously rose up to greet me. He stood tall on the hearth, a figure justifying his mother's unconcealed pride. So you are come down, said he. You must be better then, much better. I scarcely expected we should meet thus, or here. I was alarmed last night, and if I had not been forced to hurry away to a dying patient, I certainly would not have left you. But my mother herself is something of a doctress, and Martha an excellent nurse. I saw the case was a fainting fit, not necessarily dangerous. What brought it on? I have yet to learn, and all particulars. Meantime, I trust you really do feel better? Much better, I said calmly. Much better. I thank you, Dr. John. For reader, this tall young man, this darling son, this host of mine, this Graham Breton, was Dr. John. He and no other. And what is more, I ascertained this identity scarcely with surprise. What is more, when I heard Graham's steps on the stairs, I knew what manner of figure would enter, and for whose aspect to prepare my eyes. The discovery was not of today. Its dawn had penetrated my perceptions long since. Of course I remembered young Breton well, and though ten years from sixteen to twenty-six, may greatly change the boy as they mature him to the man, yet they could bring no such utter difference as would suffice wholly to blind my eyes or baffle my memory. Dr. John Graham Breton retained still an affinity to the youth of sixteen. He had his eyes, he had some of his features, to wit, all the excellently moulded lower half of the face, I found him out soon. I first recognised him on that occasion, noted several chapters back, when my unguardedly fixed attention had drawn on me the mortification of an implied rebuke. Subsequent observation confirmed, in every point, that early surmise, I traced in the gesture, the port, and the habits of his manhood, all his boy's promise. I heard in his now deep tones the accent of former days. Certain turns of phrase, peculiar to him of old, were peculiar to him still. And so was many a trick of eye and lip, many a smile, many a sudden ray levelled from the irid under his well-charactered brow. To say anything on the subject, to hint at my discovery, had not suited my habits of thought, or assimilated with my system of feeling. On the contrary, I had preferred to keep the matter to myself. I liked entering his presence, 
covered with a cloud he had not seen through, while he stood before me under a ray of special illumination, which shone all partial over his head, trembled about his feet, and cast light no farther. Well I knew that to him it could make little difference, were I to come forward and announce, This is Lucy Snow, so I kept back in my teacher's place, and as he never asked my name, so I never gave it. He heard me called Miss and Miss Lucy. He never heard the surname, Snow. As to spontaneous recognition, though I perhaps was still less changed than he, the idea never approached his mind. And why should I suggest it? During tea, Dr. John was kind, as it was his nature to be. That meal over, and the tray carried out, he made a cosy arrangement of the cushions in a corner of the sofa, and obliged me to settle amongst them. He and his mother also drew to the fire, and ere we had sat ten minutes, I caught the eye of the latter fastened steadily upon me. Women are certainly quicker in some things than men. Well, she exclaimed presently, I have seldom seen a stronger likeness. Graham, have you observed it? Observed what? What ails the old lady now? How you stare, Mamma? One would think you had an attack of second sight. Tell me, Graham, of whom does that young lady remind you? Pointing to me. Mamma, you put her out of countenance. I often tell you abruptness is your fault. Remember, too, that to you she is a stranger and does not know your ways. Now, when she looks down, now, when she turns sideways, who is she like, Graham? Indeed, Mamma, since you propound the riddle, I think you ought to solve it. And you have known her some time, you say, ever since you first began to attend the school in the Rue Fossette. Yet you never mentioned to me that singular resemblance. I could not mention a thing of which I never thought, and which I do not now acknowledge. What can you mean? Stupid boy, look at her. Graham did look, but this was not to be endured. I saw how it must end, so I thought it best to anticipate. Dr. John, I said, has had so much to do and think of, since he and I shook hands at our last parting in St. Anne Street, that, while I readily found out Mr. Graham Breton some months ago, it never occurred to me as possible that he should recognize Lucy Snow. Lucy Snow, I thought so, I knew it, cried Mrs. Breton, and she at once stepped across the hearth and kissed me. Some ladies would perhaps have made a great bustle upon such a discovery without being particularly glad of it, but it was not my godmother's habit to make a bustle, and she preferred all sentimental demonstrations in bass relief. So she and I got over this surprise with few words and a single salute. Yet I dare say she was pleased, and I know I was, while we renewed old acquaintance. Graham, sitting opposite, silently disposed of his paroxysm of astonishment. Mamma calls me a stupid boy, and I think I am so, at length he said. For upon my honour, often as I have seen you, 
I never once suspected this fact, and yet I perceive it all now. Lucy Snow, to be sure, I recollect her perfectly, and there she sits, not a doubt of it. But, he added, you surely have not known me as an old acquaintance all this time, and never mentioned it? That I have, was my answer. Dr. John commented not. I suppose he regarded my silence as eccentric, but he was indulgent in refraining from censure. I dare say, too, he would have deemed it impertinent to have interrogated me very closely, to have asked me the why and wherefore of my reserve, and though he might feel a little curious, the importance of the case was by no means such as to tempt curiosity to infringe on discretion. For my part, I just ventured to inquire whether he remembered the circumstance of my once looking at him very fixedly, for the slight annoyance he had betrayed on that occasion still lingered sore on my mind. I think I do, said he. I think I was even cross with you. You considered me a little bold, perhaps? I inquired. Not at all. Only shy and retiring as your general manner was, I wondered what personal or facial enormity in me proved so magnetic to your usually averted eyes. You see how it was now? Perfectly. And here Mrs. Breton broke in with many, many questions about past times. And for her satisfaction I had to recur to gone-by troubles, to explain causes of seeming estrangement, to touch on single-handed conflict with life, with death, with grief, with fate. Dr. John listened, saying little. He and she then told me of changes they had known. Even with them, all had not gone smoothly. And fortune had retrenched her once abundant gifts. But so courageous a mother, with such a champion in her son, was well fitted to fight a good fight with the world and to prevail ultimately. Dr. John himself was one of those on whose birth benign planets have certainly smiled. Adversity might set against him her most sullen front. He was the man to beat her down with smiles, strong and cheerful and firm and courteous, not rash, yet valiant. He was the aspirant to woo destiny herself and to win from her stone eyeballs a beam almost loving. In the profession he had adopted, his success was now quite decided. Within the last three months he had taken this house, a small chateau, they told me, about half a league without the Port de Crecy, this countryside being chosen for the sake of his mother's health, with which town air did not now agree. Hither he had invited Mrs. Breton, and she, on leaving England, had brought with her such residue furniture of the former St. Anne Street mansion as she had thought fit to keep unsold. Hence my bewilderment at the phantom of chairs and the wreaths of looking-glasses, tea-urns and teacups. As the clock struck eleven, Dr. John stopped his mother. Miss Snow must retire now, he said. She is beginning to look very pale. Tomorrow I will venture to put some questions respecting the cause of her loss of health. She is much changed. Indeed, since last July, 
when I saw her in act with no little spirit the part of a very killing fine gentleman. As to last night's catastrophe, I am sure thereby hangs the tale. But we will inquire no further this evening. Good night, Miss Lucy. And so he kindly led me to the door, and holding a wax candle, lighted me up the one flight of stairs. When I had said my prayers, and when I was undressed and laid down, I felt that I still had friends. Friends not professing vehement attachment, not offering the tender solace of well-matched and congenial relationship, on whom, therefore, but moderate demand of affection was to be made, of whom but moderate expectation formed, but towards whom my heart softened instinctively and yearned with an importunate gratitude, which I entreated reason betimes to check. Do not let me think of them too often, too much, too fondly, I implored. Let me be content with a temperate draught of this living's dream. Let me not run athirst and apply passionately to its welcome waters. Let me not imagine in them a sweeter taste than earth's fountains know. Oh, would to God I may be enabled to feel enough sustained by an occasional amicable intercourse, rare, brief, unengrossing, and tranquil, quite tranquil. Still repeating this word, I turned to my pillow, and still repeating it, I steeped that pillow with tears. End of section 27. Recording by Leanne Fortune. Section 28 of Villette by Charlotte Bronte. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Leanne Fortune. Section 28. These struggles with the natural character, the strong native bent of the heart, may seem futile and fruitless, but in the end, they do good. They tend, however slightly, to give the actions, the conduct, that turn which reason approves, and which feeling, perhaps, too often opposes. They certainly make a difference in the general tenor of a life, and enable it to be better regulated, more equable, quieter on the surface, and it is on the surface only the common gaze will fall. As to what lies below, leave that with God. Man, your equal, weak as you, and not fit to be your judge, may be shut out thence. Take it to your Maker. Show Him the secrets of the Spirit He gave. Ask Him how you are to bear the pains He has appointed. Kneel in His presence, and pray with faith for light in darkness, for strength in piteous weakness, for patience in extreme need. Certainly, at some hour, though perhaps not your hour, the waiting waters will stir in some shape, though perhaps not the shape you dreamed, which your heart loved, and for which it bled. The healing herald will descend, the cripple and the blind and the dumb and the possessed will be led to bathe. Herald, come quickly! Thousands lie round the pool, weeping and despairing, to see it through slow years, 
stagnant. Long are the times of heaven. The orbits of angel messengers seem wide to mortal vision. They may enring ages. The cycle of one departure and return may clasp unnumbered generations in dust, kindling to brief suffering life, and through pain passing back to dust, may meanwhile perish out of memory again and yet again. To how many maimed and mourning millions is the first and sole angel visitant, him Easterns call Azrael. I tried to get up next morning, but while I was dressing, and at intervals drinking cold water from the carafe on my washstand, with design to brace up that trembling weakness which made dressing so difficult, in came Mrs. Breton. Here is an absurdity, was her morning accost. Not so, she added, and dealing with me at once in her own brisk, energetic fashion, that fashion which I used formerly to enjoy seeing applied to her son, and by him vigorously resisted. In two minutes she consigned me captive to the French bed. There you lie till afternoon, said she. My boy left orders before he went out that such should be the case, and I can assure you my son is master and must be obeyed. Presently you shall have breakfast. Presently she brought that meal, brought it with her own active hands not leaving me to servants. She seated herself on the bed while I ate. Now, it is not everybody, even amongst our respected friends and esteemed acquaintance, whom we like to have near us, whom we like to watch us, to wait on us, to approach us with the proximity of a nurse to a patient. It is not every friend whose eye is alight in a sick room, whose presence is there a solace. But all this was Mrs. Breton to me. All this she had ever been. Food or drink never pleased me so well as when it came through her hands. I do not remember the occasion when her entrance into a room had not made that room cheerier. Our nature's own predilections and antipathies alike strange. There are people from whom we secretly shrink whom we would personally avoid, though reason confesses that they are good people. There are others with faults of temper, etc., evident enough, beside whom we live content, as if the air about them did us good. My godmother's lively black eye and clear brunette cheek, her warm, prompt hand, her self-reliant mood, her decided bearing, were all beneficial to me as the atmosphere of some salubrious climate. Her son used to call her the old lady. It filled me with pleasant wonder to note how the alacrity and power of five and twenty still breathed from her and around her. I would bring my work here, she said, as she took from me the empty teacup, and sit with you the whole day if that overbearing John Graham had not put his veto upon such a proceeding. Now, Mamma, he said when he went out, take notice, you are not to knock up your goddaughter with gossip, and he particularly desired me to keep close to my own quarters 
and spare you my fine company. He says, Lucy, he thinks you have had a nervous fever, judging from your look. Is that so? I replied that I did not quite know what my ailment had been, but that I had certainly suffered a good deal, especially in mind. Further, on this subject, I did not consider it advisable to dwell, for the details of what I had undergone belonged to a portion of my existence in which I never expected my godmother to take a share. Into what a new region would such a confidence have led? That hale, serene nature, the difference between her and me, might be figured by that between the stately ship cruising safe on smooth seas with its full complement of crew, a captain gay and brave, adventurous and provident, and the lifeboat, which most days of the year lies dry and solitary in an old dark boathouse, only put into sea when the billows run high in rough weather, when cloud encounters water, when danger and death divide between them the rule of the great deep. No, the Louisa Breton never was out of harbour on such a night, and in such a scene her crew could not conceive it. So the half-drowned lifeboat man keeps his own counsel and spins no yarns. She left me, and I lay in bed content. It was good of Graham to remember me before he went out. My day was lonely, but the prospect of coming evening abridged and cheered it. Then, too, I felt weak, and rest seemed welcome, and after the morning hours were gone by, those hours which always bring, even to the necessarily unoccupied, a sense of business to be done of tasks waiting fulfilment, a vague impression of obligation to be employed. When the stirring time was past, and the silent descent of afternoon hushed housemaid steps on the stairs and in the chambers, I then passed into a dreamy mood. Not unpleasant. My calm little room seemed somehow like a cave in the sea. There was no colour about it except that white and pale green suggestive of foam and deep water. The blanched cornice was adorned with shell-shaped ornaments, and there were white mouldings like dolphins in the ceiling angles. Even that one touch of colour visible in the red satin pincushion bore affinity to coral. Even that dark shining glass might have mirrored a mermaid. When I closed my eyes, I heard a gale, subsiding at last, bearing upon the house-front like a settling swell upon a rock-base. I heard it drawn and withdrawn far, far off, like a tide retiring from a shore of the upper world, a world so high above that the rush of its largest waves, the dash of its fiercest breakers, could sound down in the submarine home, only like murmurs and a lullaby. Amidst these dreams came evening, and then Martha brought a light. With her aid, I was quickly dressed, and stronger now than in the morning. I made my way down to the blue saloon unassisted. Dr. John, it appears, had concluded his round of professional calls earlier than usual. His form was the first object that met my eyes as I entered the parlour. He stood in that window recess opposite the door, reading the close type of a newspaper, 
by such dull light as closing day yet gave. The fire shone clear, but the lamp stood on the table unlit, and tea was not yet brought up. As to Mrs. Breton, my active godmother, who, I afterwards found, had been out in the open air all day, lay half reclined in her deep cushioned chair, actually lost in a nap. Her son, seeing me, came forward. I noticed that he trod carefully not to wake the sleeper. He also spoke low. His mellow voice never had any sharpness in it. Modulated, as at present, it was calculated rather to soothe than startle slumber. This is a quiet little chateau, he observed, after inviting me to sit near the casement. I don't know whether you may have noticed it in your walks, though. Indeed, from the chaussee, it is not visible. Just a mile beyond the Porte de Crecy, you turn down a lane which soon becomes an avenue, and that leads you on, through meadow and shade, to the very door of this house. It is not a modern place, but built somewhat in the old style of the Bassville. It is rather a manoir than a chateau. They call it La Terrasse, because its front rises from a broad turfed walk, when steps lead down a grassy slope to the avenue. See yonder, the moon rises. She looks well through the tree boles. Where, indeed, does the moon not look well? What is the scene, confined or expansive, which her orb does not hallow? Rosy or fiery? She mounted now above a not distant bank. Even while we watched her flushed ascent, she cleared to gold, and in very brief space floated up stainless into a now calm sky. Did moonlight soften or sadden Dr. Breton? Did it touch him with romance? I think it did. Albeit of no sighing mood, he sighed in watching it, sighed to himself quietly. No need to ponder the cause or the course of that sigh. I knew it was wakened by beauty. I knew it pursued Ginevra. Knowing this, the idea pressed upon me that it was in some sort my duty to speak the name he meditated. Of course, he was ready for the subject. I saw in his countenance a teeming plenitude of comment, question and interest, a pressure of language and sentiment, only checked, I thought, by a sense of embarrassment how to begin. To spare him this embarrassment was my best, indeed my sole use. I had but to utter the idol's name, and love's tender litany would flow out. I had just found a fitting phrase. You know that Miss Fanshawe is gone on a tour with the Cholmondeleys, and was opening my lips to speak to it, when he scattered my plans by introducing another theme. The first thing this morning, said he, putting his sentiment in his pocket, turning from the moon and sitting down, I went to the Rue Fossette and told the cuisinier that you were safe and in good hands. Do you know that I actually found that she had not yet discovered your absence from the house? She thought you safe in the great dormitory. With what care you must have been waited on. Oh, 
All that is very conceivable, said I. Goton could do nothing for me but bring me a little to Zane and a crust of bread, and I had rejected both so often during the past week that the good woman got tired of useless journeys from the dwelling-house kitchen to the school dormitory and only came once a day at noon to make my bed. I believe, however, that she is a good-natured creature and would have been delighted to cook me cotelet de mouton if I could have eaten them. What did Madame Beck mean by leaving you alone? Madame Beck could not foresee that I should fall ill. Your nervous system bore a good share of the suffering? I am not quite sure what my nervous system is, but I was dreadfully low-spirited, which disables me from helping you by pill or potion. Medicine can give nobody good spirits. My art halts at the threshold of hypochondria. She just looks in and sees a chamber of torture, but can neither say nor do much. Cheerful society would be of use. You should be as little alone as possible. You should take plenty of exercise. Acquiescence and a pause followed these remarks. They sounded all right, I thought, and bore the safe sanction of custom and the well-worn stamp of use. Miss Snow, recommends Dr. John, my health, nervous system included, being now, somewhat to my relief, discussed and done with. Is it permitted me to ask what your religion is? Are you a Catholic? I looked up in some surprise. A Catholic? No. Why suggest such an idea? The manner in which you were consigned to me last night made me doubt. I? Consigned to you? But indeed I forget. It yet remains for me to learn how I fell into your hands. Why, under circumstances that puzzled me. I had been in attendance all day yesterday on a case of singularly interesting and critical character, the disease being rare and its treatment doubtful. I saw a similar and still finer case in a hospital in Paris, but that will not interest you. At last, a mitigation of the patient's most urgent symptoms, acute pain is one of its accompaniments, liberated me, and I set out homeward. My shortest way lay through the Basville, and as the night was excessively dark, wild and wet, I took it. In riding past an old church belonging to a community of Beguines, I saw by a lamp burning over the porch or deep arch of the entrance a priest lifting some object in his arms. The lamp was bright enough to reveal the priest's features clearly, and I recognized him. He was a man I have often met by the sick beds of both rich and poor, and chiefly the latter. He is, I think, a good old man, far better than most of his class in this country, superior, indeed, in every way, better informed, as well as more devoted to duty. Our eyes met. He called on me to stop. What he supported was a woman, fainting or dying. I alighted. This person is one of your countrywomen, he said. Save her, if she is not dead. My countrywoman, on examination, 
turned out to be the English teacher at Madame Beck's pensionat. She was perfectly unconscious, perfectly bloodless and nearly cold. What does it all mean? was my inquiry. He communicated a curious account that you had been to him that evening at confessional, that your exhausted and suffering appearance coupled with some things you had said. Things I had said? I wonder what things. Awful crimes, no doubt, but he did not tell me what. There, you know, the seal of the confessional checked his garrulity and my curiosity. Your confidences, however, had not made an enemy of the good father. It seems he was so struck and felt so sorry that you should be out on such a night alone that he had esteemed it a Christian duty to watch you when you quitted the church and so to manage as not to lose sight of you till you should have reached home. Perhaps the worthy man might, half unconsciously, have blent in this proceeding some little of the subtlety of his class. It might have been his resolve to learn the locality of your home. Did you impart that in your confession? I did not. On the contrary, I carefully avoided the shadow of any indication. And as to my confession, Dr. John, I suppose you will think me mad for taking such a step. But I could not help it. I suppose it was all the fault of what you call my nervous system. I cannot put the case into words. But my days and nights were grown intolerable. A cruel sense of desolation pained my mind. A feeling that would make its way, rush out or kill me. Like, and this you will understand, Dr. John, the current which passes through the heart, and which if aneurysm or any other morbid cause obstructs its natural channels, seeks abnormal outlet. I wanted companionship. I wanted friendship. I wanted counsel. I could find none of these in closet or chamber. So I went and sought them in church and confessional. As to what I said, it was no confidence, no narrative. I have done nothing wrong. My life has not been active enough for any dark deed, either of romance or reality. All I pulled out was a dreary, desperate complaint. Lucy, you ought to travel for about six months. Why, your calm nature is growing quite excitable. Confound Madame Beck! Has the little buxom widow no bowels to condemn her best teacher to solitary confinement? It was not Madame Beck's fault, said I. It is no living being's fault, and I won't hear any one blamed. Who is in the wrong then, Lucy? Me, Dr. John, me, and a great abstraction on whose wide shoulders I like to lay the mountains of blame they were sculptured to bear. Me and fate. Me must take better care in future, said Dr. John, smiling. I suppose, at my bad grammar. Change of air, change of scene, those are my prescriptions, pursued the practical young doctor. But to return to our muttons, Lucy, as yet, Pierre Silas, with all his tact, they say he is a Jesuit, is no wiser than you choose him to be. 
Therefore, instead of returning to the roof of Set, your fevered wanderings, there must have been high fever. No, Dr. John, the fever took its turn that night. Now, don't make out that I was delirious, for I know differently. Good. You were as collected as myself at this moment, no doubt. Your wanderings had taken an opposite direction to the pensionnat, near the Beguinage, amidst the stress of flood and gust, and in the perplexity of darkness, you had swooned and fallen. The priest came to your succour, and the physician, as we have seen, supervened. Between us we procured a fiacre and brought you here. Fair Silas, old as he is, would carry you upstairs and lay you on that couch himself. He would certainly have remained with you till suspended animation had been restored, and so should I. But at that juncture, a hurried messenger arrived from the dying patient I had scarcely left. The last duties were called for, the physician's last visit and the priest's last rite. Extreme unction could not be deferred. Pierre, Silas and myself departed together. My mother was spending the evening abroad. We gave you in charge to Martha, leaving directions which it seems she followed successfully. Now, are you a Catholic? Not yet, said I with a smile. I never let Pierre Silas know where I live, or he will try to convert me. But give him my best and truest thanks when you see him. And if ever I get rich, I will send him money for his charities. See, Dr. John, your mother wakes. You ought to ring for tea. Which he did. And as Mrs. Breton sat up, astonished and indignant at herself for the indulgence to which she had succumbed, and fully prepared to deny that she had slept at all, her son came gaily to the attack. hush a Mamma. Sleep again. You look the picture of innocence in your slumbers. My slumbers, John Graham. What are you talking about? You know I never do sleep by day. It was the slightest doze possible. Exactly. A seraph's gentle lapse. A fairy's dream. Mamma, under such circumstances, you always remind me of Titania. That is because you yourself are so like Bottom. Miss Snow, did you ever hear anything like Mamma's wit? She is the most sprightly woman of her size and age. Keep your compliments to yourself, sir, and do not neglect your own size, which seems to me a good deal on the increase. Lucy, has he not rather the air of an incipient John Bull? He used to be slender as an eel, and now I fancy in him a sort of heavy dragoon bent, a beef-eater tendency. Graham, take notice. If you grow fat, I disown you. <laughs> As if you could not sooner disown your own personality. I am indispensable to the old lady's happiness, Lucy. She would pine away in green and yellow melancholy if she had not my six feet of iniquity to scold. It keeps her lively. It maintains the wholesome ferment of her spirits. The two were now standing opposite to each other, one on each side the fireplace. Their words were not very fond, but their mutual looks atoned for verbal deficiencies. 
At least, the best treasure of Mrs. Breton's life was certainly casketed in her son's bosom. Her dearest pulse throbbed in his heart. As to him, of course, another love shared his feelings with filial love. And no doubt, as the new passion was the latest born, so he assigned it in his emotions, Benjamin's portion. Ginevra, Ginevra, did Mrs. Breton yet know at whose feet her own young idol had laid his homage? Would she approve that choice? I could not tell, but I could well guess that if she knew Miss Fanshawe's conduct towards Graham, her alternations between coldness and coaxing, and repulse and allurement, if she could at all suspect the pain with which she had tried him, if she could have seen, as I had seen, his fine spirit subdued and harassed, his inferior preferred before him, his subordinate made the instrument of his humiliation, then, Mrs. Breton, would have pronounced Ginevra imbecile or perverted or both. Well, I thought so too. That second evening passed as sweetly as the first. More sweetly indeed. We enjoyed a smoother interchange of thought. Old troubles were not reverted to. Acquaintance was better cemented. I felt happier, easier, more at home. That night, instead of crying myself asleep, I went down to dreamland by a pathway bordered with pleasant thoughts. End of section 28. Recording by Leanne Fortune.